0: Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Normally I'm joined by one or two friends and we talk about one or two movies but we're doing things a little differently today because I'm joined by a bunch of my recurring guests as we talk about the best movies of 2018. I see this podcast is a expression of what me and my friends like and don't like about movies and what we are seeing At the movies. So I figured the best way to do a top 10 podcast would be to create an aggregate top 10 as I had several different recurring guests come on and talk about their favorite movies of 2018. At the end, I'd kind of assign a ranking to each place one through 10 and make an aggregate top 10 for the podcast and I thought that'd be a uh, the best way to kind of show where the rewind as a whole came down on the movies of 2018 and this is the first time I've done this I'm sure it'll evolve as uh, I continue to do this with each year but this is the format I decided to go with this year and my first guest who I'm excited to be joined by to talk about his favorite movies of 2018 is Fred Cobb. Fred thanks for being here.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Very excited to talk about twenty eighteen. Yeah, Lots of so good movies up there.
0: You did a you did a handful of movies uh, with me from twenty eighteen, including uh, Crazy Rich Asians, uh, First Man, Mission Impossible: Fallout operation finale which i mean really we're scraping the bottom of the barrel on that one before we got into the (laughs) award season uh but a a, a wide variety of things that uh some that were highly regarded and some that weren't as highly regarded some that we thought were going to get a lot of awards like first man do you have any uh before we get into your top 10 do you have any quick big picture thoughts about the year in movies in 2018 and just kind of i know you've gotten really into film just as i have in the last few years and as far as like how it compares to other recent years
1: For me, it was very heartening to see that a couple of the really big, successful um, box office hits were actually high caliber movies. Mm -hmm. Um, Black Panther is a very good example of that. Mission Impossible, Fallout, um, Mm -hmm. A Star is Born made a lot of money. And I think it's very heartening to see that a lot of the cynicism we've seen over the last couple of years about pyromania and CGI dominating the box office that there was a lot of very high quality stuff that got a lot of attention from people. So I think that's something um, very positive to note about 2018 and something I hope we can carry forward into this year and beyond.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would agree. I think, I mean, you know, a couple – a lot of people – there's been this whole talk about like how many people are going to watch the Oscars and – uh They're making all these stupid changes to the show like cutting out some of the technical awards and smaller awards and uh, the host yeah, not having a host and cutting down... First, they were going to try and get rid of some of the songs and have not have them performed. Then, thankfully, Lady Gaga stepped up and said, I'm not performing Shallow if you don't let everyone else perform their songs. And then they're like, oh, all the songs are going to be 90 seconds. But you can't even go 90 seconds without getting to the good part yeah. of Shallow. So they've just done all this dumb stuff. Whereas all I think that they really needed to do... Can't
1: forget and, about the popular movie category they tried.
0: Yeah, and thankfully, Black Panther got a Best Picture nomination because like, it was my favorite movie of the year. I'll spoil that now. But, I mean... If it hadn't, then I would have been really upset more so not because it didn't get recognized because that would have probably led to the popular film category being a definite thing. And so they're trying to make all these changes in service of helping the ratings where I think all that really matters is that you have, like, really big movies that a lot of people see that do really well. And, I mean, one of those is Bohemian Rhapsody, which I don't really think deserves the nomination, but I'm I'm not – I honestly didn't think the world was going to end if it got in because it's probably really helpful to the show to get viewers if it just nominates a movie that makes $850 million at the box office. So – and Black Panther made, uh, like – over a billion dollars and a stars board made several hundred million so i think it's just good having those involved and i think it is pretty cool that like uh i think there just was a really good mix in 2018 of like big studio stuff that like was really good uh like black panther um like A Star is Born, like uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and uh, Crazy Rich Asians, big studio films that were very well critically received. But I also thought there were some like some really good indie movies too. So I thought it was just a really good mix. And I thought it was a really solid year at the movies. And uh, I had a good mix of stuff in my top 20, if you will, of things that didn't even get nominated for Oscars. And um, I just think it, there was a lot of stuff that like I could have easily been totally okay with getting Best Picture nominees that weren't even like uh, – like my top 10. So, uh, and
1: one more point I think I can actually make. And I didn't really think about this before. I think it's great that because of movie pass, which didn't pan out, but AMC stops a list. People actually have a chance to go see a lot of those movies at the movie theater, because Mm -hmm. you can use several of, uh, the movies you get each month to go see smaller productions that you wouldn't necessarily think you would need to see on a big screen. But now that you have the opportunity and don't need to shell out a ton of money for it, I think some of the uh, less bombastic stuff is getting way more attention than it would have gotten in previous years.
0: Yeah, it would have been cool if MoviePass could have survived the whole year. Uh, and in the the big change, Regal and AMC were doing the the Best Picture showcase stuff, which they're doing again this year. But they were doing that for a couple years before, even before MoviePass got really big. So that's a good thing people can have. But like. If, if, they, if they're if they lucky enough to live near an AMC that make it worth getting it, I think that makes it easier for them to kind of check off all these smaller movies and make them more willing to spend that money. And that, that's a very good point and hopefully, and I think that's why it was partially a very big year for documentaries. I remember before, yeah. uh, even after movie MoviePass died, they put out some stories about how like a big chunk of like the r- revenue for uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, Three Identical Strangers, and RBG like all came from movie pass users and hopefully documentaries continue to be like really good um, and will end up having more years like we did this year where there's like a lot of good documentaries because on top of those you threw out ankle changers didn't even get an oscar nomination but uh and it actually won at the dga awards for best documentary directing <laughs> ironically enough but uh free Soul also like it was like a bunch of documentaries making over 10 million dollars so it's just kind of cool that it was that diverse of year for things that like got a lot of attention so uh the way we're going to do this though is i'm going to have fred kind of count down his top 10 because i'm going to have like around uh, I I don't even know the total number yet but it's going to be a lot of friends on here giving their top tens and I didn't really want to just like wait till the end just to like talk to my listeners for 20 minutes to just just no one but me talking and then give my top 10 so as fred goes if he happens to have a movie in his top 10 that i have in mind i'm just going to mention it and i'm still going to give my thoughts on all of them as we go and we're going to try and uh do this in an efficient way so fred without further ado you we can start going from 10 to 1 uh what made your what 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 was what just made your cut and if you want to give like an honorable mention if you had one that was like really hard to like leave off before you had to decide on what was number 10 feel free to say that but if you want to start giving out uh what your top 10 is uh what made the cut
1: Sure. Let me jump right in then. So my number 10 movie of the year is If Beale Street Could Talk.
0: Oh, well, that's my number nine. So
1: Oh, look at that. Uh, so we're already uh, off to a good start. Yeah. Here.
0: So I had a long talk about that a couple weeks ago with uh, our friends uh, Elijah and Daniel. So uh, what, what, what really resonated with you about Beale Street?
1: So I just saw Moonlight for the first time a couple of weeks ago, actually. I know I'm very late to the show. So I think Barry Jenkins really is one of the most exciting filmmakers out there. He is a very efficient kind of guy who does very emotional, very um, compelling storytelling with fascinating characters. And I think If Beer Street Could Talk is a very important movie that touches on a lot of um, important themes that are relevant today, even though it's set back in the 1970s.
0: Yeah, you know, and uh, it's funny you say that about fascinating characters. Cause that was like a big point of contention when we did the podcast with uh, with Daniel and Elijah, because Daniel doesn't like Barry Jenkins that much because he doesn't think he really develops his characters. I thought part of the part of Moonlight, as I already said on that podcast, was that someone in the situation Chiron was in is going to be emotionally stunted when he doesn't have the support system he needs to kind of come to terms with his sexuality and those kind of things. And I actually, so it didn't bother me if he wasn't the most well developed person who you knew everything about, because I thought that was kind of the point. With Beale Street, I actually don't know if you actually get inside what makes Tish and Fonny tick as people, but at the same time, I still – the filmmaking was so impressive to me. I thought that they were in love between the score, the cinematography, and just the, yes, way, the, they, score
1: especially. the way they Very. look at each other.
0: Yeah. Uh, i i i still bought that they really cared about each other and then the movie had so much else going for it with just what it is doing between that brian tyree henry scene but also the uh, dave franco scene really resonated with me and i thought they and also the scenes with their lawyer they kind of shows how they're really facing an uphill battle as african-americans in this country and even with the help of certain nice white people like there are these systemic forces working against them and i thought to deal with heavy themes like that while still um giving you something very visually appealing and even having some like having some funny moments, but at the same time, you're always brought back to rea- the unfortunate reality of the situation. And um, as someone who just got into Barry Jenkins, I guess, in the last couple of weeks, I think you might actually enjoy Medicine for Melancholy. His first movie it came out in 2008, made for like $15,000 in black and white shot in San Francisco, wow. just two people that have a one night stand and then try and deal with the aftermath of it as they walk around the city. It's like really good. It stars Wyatt Cenac as the, like the lead guy uh, of all people. But yeah, Beale Street Could Talk, your 10, my 9. So kind of a good start right there. Uh, what's your number 9?
1: All right. My number 9 is actually your number 1, Black Panther. All right, cool. So um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about why it's a great movie because I'm sure you'll touch on that and several people will have it in their top 10. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you why it's only my number 9. That's fine. Um, a lot of stuff I really did like. I thought the visuals were amazing. It was a very unusual take on a superhero movie. But I thought a lot of times the typical Marvel template kind of shone through a little bit. And ultimately, it is still a superhero movie, and you can only do so much with that. Hmm. And it's something I definitely need to watch again, because I only watched it once back in February. Mm -hmm. But my initial thought at the time was very exciting, great action scenes but ultimately a Marvel movie.
0: Kind of crazy. Oh. We're 10 days away from when it's been a year. I saw it, I think, on opening night. Like, it came out that like February 16th or something. So it's almost been... We're 10 days away from it being a year. Like This year's gone by like really fast but i mean i mean i i I certainly can't disagree with anyone that like still thinks there are inherent limitations to something that's going to stick to that formula and i think it did push the boundaries of what a superhero movie could be somewhat and who knows hopefully someone tries to push it further but i mean part of what i like so much about it was i thought that ryan coogler did try and find something really interesting to say and it was much more profound than like what most superhero movies do even if i really have liked just about every marvel movie aside from uh aside from like Doctor Strange and like the first two Thor movies uh it's I, I still think it found a way to kind of be a cut above the rest by really kind of thinking uh first of all you didn't have to watch other Marvel movies to get it that's one thing I thought it was pretty self-contained even if like you said it still does have some of that traditional structure but at the same time it has some really like interesting messages uh within it which I think we just felt very unique to me and very powerful and I thought Michael J. P. Jordan gave a pretty transcendent performance uh what about your number eight?
1: number eight that's actually a movie we talked about on the podcast a couple of months ago that would be mission impossible fallout right okay very exciting action movie and i think any franchise that can make it to a sixth movie and still keep on topping itself deserves to be included in the top 10 amazing stunt work tom cruise is completely believable 56 years old still running around cities uh hanging from helicopters, uh, driving on motorbikes through Paris. Just a very exciting film, very good time, and what I hope any action movie could actually be.
0: Yeah, for some reason, I I mean, I I only had it on... uh... I think that I'm really my only criticism with it. Cause I gave it four and a half stars on Letterboxd, but it's like in the twenties on my rankings was I guess my, and I, and I think I talked about this on the podcast was I probably made a mistake by going back and watching all five of the first movies, like in the like two weeks before I saw it. Cause I think it maybe bothered me a little bit as I was watching just how much I could see the seams of like what each of these movies has to do or see the, see the, that skeleton of them. And I, I, maybe I thought it was a little predictable at points, whether it be like having to hang off ledges or, you <laughs> the max thing or have like a a big setback right before the final triumph so maybe those small things like that really bothered me in the moment but I had a hard time remembering why it was I had it on 27 at like 27 on my list I just went back and looked at my letterbox review and I think that speaks well to it that I I really only remembered the good stuff until I actually like went back and looked at specifically why I didn't have it higher uh I mean it's just kind of amazing like I mean that especially Tom Cruise at his age that they're able to top themselves like this I mean who knows what they're going to do next but like you know he's one you, you know he probably has an in himself to want to prove that hey he can still do it at 60 at the same level so i by the time like the next one comes out he probably will be around 60 years old or close to it he's what uh like 57 now uh Mm -hmm. or 56 now so like i mean i'm really excited because i mean like there are just certain scenes like the the big motorcycle set piece or the or the skydiving scene i mean like i know i don't know if they, they do these movies like they do mission impossible where they conceive of the set pieces before they uh actually do the thing but, I mean, I... Sometimes it does seem that way, doesn't it? But, like, the, the, the set pieces are so good, it's like, who cares? Uh, oh, yeah. and, and I thought the plot was maybe uh, actually a little easier to follow than some of the other ones, which, I mean, really is secondary in these movies, but I still think it matters. Yeah, what about... What, what's your number seven?
1: Number seven is a movie I just saw a couple of weeks ago, actually. Uh, Leave No Trace.
0: Right. What, what, what?
1: Um, directed by uh, Deborah Granik, um, who did Winter's Bone a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, really just a very moving experience and very efficient. It doesn't really spell out a lot of what is going on with these characters, but you can clearly see that something happened to Ben Foster. Um, He's a combat veteran and he's clearly deeply traumatized and him and his daughter live out in the woods. And there's a very um, just touching bond between the two of them. And it's very sparse filmmaking, but in the best way possible. I really enjoyed spending time with these characters. My favorite color is green, so I always enjoy seeing a lot mm. of outdoor scenes. And um, really one of the like best small independent productions um, to come out of Sundance last year.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to... Um and this i'm glad you brought it up because i mean it, it's in my top 30 i didn't have it in my top 10 but like i was really moved by it and i i didn't get a chance to talk about it on the podcast i just don't think i really know a lot of people that saw it at the time luckily it's already on amazon prime i highly recommend anyone go check it out and i think the the biggest thing i enjoyed about it was that when you think about like a story about ptsd you're you keep thinking that and expecting like a, bun- a scene where someone's just going to erupt or have some kind of weird flashback scene to some kind of war thing and it's not really like that like you said it doesn't spell everything out but you know the guy's disturbed and you keep waiting for like a really big blow up with him and his daughter like a massive screaming fight and you're almost dreading it because they even if you that's probably not that you, you can acknowledge it's not the best way for her to raise her for him to raise her they do have a good relationship uh-huh. and Absolutely. I, and you're just kind of dreading oh well you know where this is going they're gonna like have a massive fight and it, it never is that like eventually they just kind of grasp that like they, they can't continue on that way but it doesn't need to be said in some big bombastic scene and the audience understands Still, perfectly what's going on, which I think is like the biggest accomplishment of that movie, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, did you have if you don't have any other thoughts on that, what's your number six? Number
1: six is a small movie called Stan and Ollie. Okay, so I uh, growing up in Europe, um, Laurel and Hardy they're kind of uh, Abbott and Costello over there, oh. and when I was a kid, my parents bought me a lot of the VHS tapes of their early shows in the 20s and 30s. And it was very simplistic vaudeville comedy, really, um, just some like dumb acting, and um, the main gag they did was they would always like poke at each other's eyes. Um, and people laughed, and Stan and Ollie is about um, the final stage in their career, it's the 1950s, they're both in their 60s, and uh, they're doing one final tour through England, and Stan Laurel is played by Steve Coogan, who gives a terrific performance, um, really something I hope um elevates him and allows him to be a little bit more prominent in dramatic roles. Mm-hmm. And Oliver Hardy is played by John C. Riley, who really atones for that disaster that was Holmes and Watson at the end of the year. He had a last year
0: also. He had he had a big year, you know, as an artist. Yeah, and he was also in the Sisters Brothers. Yeah. Uh, but
1: but the bottom line about that movie is it just I thought it was a very um insightful, fascinating take on um two old guys who at the end of their career kind of realized that maybe they could have done things differently. Maybe they could have been the next Charlie Chaplin and had the same kind of world renown, Um, but they just never got there. And for a movie that I expected to just be kind of silly and funny, it was actually incredibly moving. So this is the kind of film that not a lot of people will likely see, but um, I highly recommend it to anyone who um, is interested in, filmmaking and 1930s comedy and who has really ever heard of Laurel and Hardy
0: yeah that's interesting I didn't know that they were like that big in Europe I just kind of thought that was like the like compare I didn't know that was like their version of Abba Canastella because like all those people are American like all the four of those dudes so uh I thought it was interesting that like they that to, to hear you explain it to me like that they're bigger there I didn't know that I saw well, it it's actually British oh yes. So Oh, okay. I, I forgot I forgot that he was talking at the British accent in the movie. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I saw it, and you called it fascinating and insightful. I would probably only call it insightful with respect to me. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I just had trouble connecting with it. I, I was not that, like, really engaged. It I it bored me at parts, I, even though I could recognize that they were, like, giving really good performances, and I, I thought it was a pretty good depiction of a friendship that had really been through a lot of ups and downs. I just didn't really... Find myself all that excited or really like drawn in as, as much as I'd hoped. I just didn't connect with them that level. But I mean, I can respect like what these guys did and how they brought out the essence of what I suppose these characters were actually like. But yeah, um, inter- that's interesting. I I saw you gave it a positive letterbox review. I didn't realize that you, you had it stacked up that high against everything else you saw last year. And uh, it's interesting. And it, it's interesting that it maybe didn't really get more traction with the awards. It's kind of old timey showbiz thing like that. You might have thought it actually would have. Um, yeah I think got gold nomination, yeah, and that was about it um but yeah, okay, well, uh, let's go to number four uh number
1: five actually oh, five
0: sorry.
1: so we're good here black uh Blacksman is ah, my number five, okay, cool, so I'm not really familiar with Spike Lee's work all that much. The only other film I've seen that he's directed is Inside Men, okay. which is kind of the most mainstream thing I think he's done, which is a bank robbery thriller with denzel Washington and mm-hmm. Clive Owen um. Black Clansman was just, a lot of times, a very funny experience. I laughed out loud on several occasions. But I think it's also a movie with very serious undertones, obviously, and which is still very relevant today in a lot of ways, especially, of course, given what's been going on um, over the last couple of years with racism being a little bit more exposed in the media almost and people being held accountable so this is a very good time for a movie like that to be released and spike lee is probably the perfect guy to make it very happy he got a best director nomination and um also very happy for adam driver actually Mm -hmm. that uh, his work in this movie is being recognized because um he didn't necessarily strike me as the kind of guy who in the awards shows would necessarily be uh uh, distinguished for his work in this, but um, really tough performance he pulls off. So definitely um, very high up in my list. Yeah, Black I mean,
0: yeah, I definitely connected with, I mean, his character because of just the, I mean, I'm Jewish. He was Jewish. He had to really come to grips with that kind of thing. And I mean, I, I was hoping John David Washington would get nominated too. I, uh, I mean, I, pre- I preferred him. Well, I can't say I preferred him to Willem Dafoe. I still have to see at Attorney in Eastgate, but I preferred him to Vigo Mortensen. And uh, yeah, I, I wish he'd gotten in as well, but I'm very happy for Spike, I, I think the reason I'm, it's like number 16 on my list. I think the reason I didn't have it a little higher is because there were a couple things that like just bothered me as far as like the plot contortions in the movie. Like I just like them insisting that, uh, John David Washington has to go be the security guard for David Duke, but for like for no real reason, right. and, uh, just, it seemed like to advance the plot and a couple other like small notes like that, that like bothered me a little bit as I was watching the movie. But I mean, uh, I mean, I, I still thought it was like a really engaging story and uh, I, I, you know, there's been, like, this whole war of, war of words between Boots Riley and Spike Lee where some people think that uh, – where Boots Riley thought that, like, Spike was maybe um, – shouldn't have, like, portrayed, like, any cops as being as good as uh, what uh, Ron Stallworth, Ron Stallworth. As Ron Stallworth yeah. was. But, like, I mean and, – and I think they might have changed some things from the original story, but, like, I mean – I don't think any of the liberties they took were anything too great in my opinion and I think that Stallworth having to struggle with that was pretty interesting. I mean, I'm sure there are cops that really have to deal with that kind of conundrum, not necessarily getting infilt- infiltrating the KKK, but like having to like deal with I mean racism within their own profession and how they're going to handle that within their community when certain parts of their community resent them for that. And I, I thought I got it all that stuff well. Was very funny at points and was still very suspenseful at points and had really good filmmaking. So I agree and I thank you. Uh, I, I'm jealous of you because you have a lot of good stuff to look forward to if you want to discover some more Spike Lee work. I'd make your next two stops on the Spike Lee filmography. Uh, Do the Right Thing and, Black, and Malcolm X. Malcolm X, um, yeah, yeah. So, but definitely, like, I mean, I wish I could go back and watch Do the Right Thing for the first time, but like, it still rewards you on every rewatch. Um, but yeah, uh, what about your uh, number? No. F- F- five, four. four, number four this time um
1: annihilation ah, actually okay. so this is a film that we actually discussed on your old podcast in yeah. february last year Gosh. and the more i think back on that movie the more i realized how much it captivated me it's the sort of movie that even months afterwards i kept thinking back to and i was wondering um How, like, what exactly was Alex Garland trying to tell us? Um, Was there anything more than we've already unearthed? And he really tackles a lot of stuff. Um, Ecological devastation. Um, What could happen if humanity loses control of the planet? What could happen if we have to deal with predators out in the wild again? And not only is it a very well-directed and a great-looking movie, um, with a fantastic score that made the original score shortlist actually for the Oscars and that I really wish I'd been nominated. Right.
0: Um,
1: but it's also genuinely terrifying. It's
0: very haunting. Effects. Yeah.
1: And um, I don't think that I don't watch a lot of horror movies to begin with, but um, I dare anyone to point me to a scarier scene than the bear in for Annihilation.
2: Sure. For sure.
1: So um, definitely a very effective film. And especially because I liked Ex Machina, but I wasn't as crazy about it as a lot of people were, but this is really, um, I think, Alex Garland doing some amazing stuff, and very excited to see where he goes next.
0: Yeah, I saw Annihilation twice, because I wanted to see it again before we did the podcast, and I was, like, trying to really figure out what to make of it, because it's just, like, so much to take in, both, like, visually and with what it's trying to say overall, and I still don't think I ever, like, fully processed it, so it was, like, hard for me to, like, really move it, like, up high on my list, but, like... And like I, I, I was very adamant that I like loved Ex Machina after I saw it, but I think it's like it's certainly a simpler movie and not as ambitious as Annihilation. And I think the fact that like I couldn't wrap my head around Annihilation as easily as I wanted to, I don't think I should really count that against the movie too much. I think if a movie leaves you thinking for as long as that one did, then that's a sign that it did something right. And I really liked a lot of the performances in it too. Uh, even though it seemed like jennifer jason lee belonged in a different movie and i it, but like i mean I, I loved all the other actresses and i thought it was really fun to look at like it was really impressive just looking at that f- like you, you said earlier in the podcast you like going into the green but this felt like going into like a different kind of green oh yeah. um, and in a really interesting way and like that whole entire final sequence with the with the clone was like pretty mind-blowing and uh, amazing to watch and uh aided by that score so, uh, and
1: also, uh, an all-female cast except for a brief appearance by Oscar Isaac. So,
0: and, and uh, Benedict Wong. For That's true. A brief, a brief moment. So, but yeah, I mean, all-female leads for sure, which is good, which is really cool. Yeah. What, what, what's your number three?
1: All right. Top three. So, um, even though the Oscars didn't exactly recognize this one as much as I would have liked, I'm still going to say this is one of the best three movies of the year. Um, first
0: man. All right, I can remember. I, I honestly, like I said, I didn't go back and watch our first man, uh, listen to our first man podcast. I couldn't remember like how high on it you were. So very much so. So, yeah.
1: I like movies set in space to begin with, mm-hmm. and I also visited NASA in Houston last weekend. And 2019 will be the 50th anniversary of uh, the moon landing um, of Apollo 11. So, in some ways, um, it was a very timely movie for me. But I also really admire Damien Chazelle's technical achievements. And mm. to be fair to the Oscars, they did recognize that. Um, I'm pretty sure i got nominations for both sound mixing and sound editing and a bunch of other technical awards, which um, I'm sure it has a very good shot of actually getting. Yeah. Um, and I think R- Ryan Gosling really makes a lot out of a very quiet performance. Um, and he's very good at that sort of stuff. He did that in Drive as well. And it's a nice counterpoint to the very loud and booming score to um, just the chaos of taking off um, into space. And I really enjoyed the historical components of finding out how much work, how much dedication went into the space program in the 1960s. So this is a movie I don't think um, I will watch at home and get the same kind of sense of awe that I got at the movie theater because it is a film that lends itself to the big screen. Um, but just the experience I had at the movie theater watching this in IMAX, um, definitely a memorable um, two hours.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to go on too long in the interest of time and efficiency on this one. I, I, I definitely did not have it anywhere as near as high as you. And I actually think I like the stuff on Earth better than the stuff in space, and I almost like wanted more <laughs> of that. Like I definitely wanted them to interrogate more about like the – necessity of even doing the space mission in the first place and i thought they might have dwelled a little too much on this like flashbacks to his daughter whereas i wanted them to like talk about it some and then like f- then have it kind of click at the end when he looked at the ne- uh, bracelet he gave her that would have been pretty cool and that was just like a ways i wish i would have shifted his priorities but still really good um and i i i have experienced a little space movie fatigue as i talked about in that podcast so i enjoyed it yeah. definitely more than i expected to uh what's your number two number
1: two is eighth grade okay um also a movie i just watched recently and um i really connected with it um yeah for mainly for the reason that um i came to this country when i was in eighth grade right and my english wasn't particularly great at the time and finding yourself in an american middle school all of a sudden uh not mastering the language and uh coming into a bunch of friend groups that have known each other for a long time, tough situation to be in. And, um, Elsie Fisher really is an up and coming actress who will do a lot of fascinating stuff over the next couple of years. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Um, she really just conveys the awkwardness and, uh, the misery and the nervousness, uh, somebody that age would have, especially someone who's more introverted Um, who doesn't necessarily belong to the cool kids. And um, the movie really manages to be both poignant, but at the same time, it's also a really funny experience. You kind of laugh, uh, you feel a bit uncomfortable about the awkwardness, and I think a lot of people can relate and really see themselves in this film.
0: Yeah, I, I I really liked eighth grade a lot too. I mean, looking back on uh, what I th- said at the time, I think my really only big like criticism was that I wanted a little more diversity in the type of kids that were there. Like, I mean, other than Kayla, it's like all the boys until the uh, chicken nugget guy at the end like, ends up to be nice. But like, so all the boys are kind of really stupid, and all the girls are just really mean. I think I wanted there to like be a few more in between kind of other characters for her to interact with. But I I thought it really got at the awkwardness well and how that's enhanced awkwardness uh, awkwardness of that age well as far as I. Know know what to be um I mean, you're a couple years younger than me, but like I mean, I feel like even when you were in middle school too, like none of the social media stuff was anywhere near where it was now and, oh though no, no. yeah, yeah and uh like, I mean, I didn't have a Facebook till I was a senior in high school, so it's like I, I don't really know what it's like to be that age and have those ex- outside pressures, and I thought Bo Burnham captured that really well. I was very sad it didn't get a Best Original Screenplay nod. A lot of people thought that was going to be something that would happen. It didn't, but it's still, like, pretty incredible for, like, a, a, like a 27-year-old male comedian to, like, be able to, like, uh, convey what it's like to be a teenage girl as well as Bo Burnham did. It's uh, quite the accomplishment. Elsie <laughs> Fisher is great. So is Josh Hamilton, who played her dad. So, Fred, what's your number one movie of the year?
1: Uh, probably a cliche pick, but I'm not ashamed. Uh, my number one movie of the year is A Star is Born.
0: Okay. It's my number two.
1: Oh, very good. All yeah. right. Uh, I wasn't quite sure how high you would be on this, but mm. I'm glad to hear that, uh, we're pretty close there. Yeah. Um, I don't know why Bradley Cooper hasn't directed before, but this is something that seems to come to him very naturally. And I think it's a crime that he wasn't nominated for best director and that Adam McKay somehow made it into the category. Hmm. Um, that angers me quite a bit, but, um, negativity aside really just an incredibly heartbreaking, uh, terrific experience, um, in IMAX on the big screen. Um, I have, um, I got a record player for Christmas and I have the vinyl at home now and that first song, when that starts playing on the screen, you really get into it. It's loud. You feel like you're at a concert. And then Bradley Cooper starts singing, and you're just amazed that this guy isn't actually doing this full time, that uh, he didn't make a career out of it. Because (laughs) Lady Gaga, of course, she's fantastic in this movie, but she's also a professional singer.
0: Yeah, I don't think anyone really knew what to expect of Bradley Cooper as a singer, because it's not really something he's done in any movie before.
1: Right, but man, what a voice, right? And um, I think the two of them click incredibly well. It's a beautiful relationship. And even though this is now the fourth time the story has been told, And I didn't go back and watch any of the other three. I think it says a lot about how fresh his take on the material is, that it clicked so well with everyone. And I'm also very happy that films with creative songs and powerful performances are being recognized, um, not just by critics and by award ceremonies, but also by audiences. And you can definitely make the case that a lot of people saw this because Lady Gaga is a major star and Bradley Cooper. um, He's somebody who has a lot of um, magnetism for big audiences. But I really do like to think that this is the kind of film that attracted people because it's really just a fantastic experience.
0: Yeah, it's pretty incredible. It's a first film, uh, given how polished it does feel. I mean, a lot of people I talked to were like, well, the the first half is just like a lot better and the second half is just like way too slow. And I'm like – I will agree the first half's more fun, uh, but I think like the second half gets a lot right at the same time about like uh, mental illness and um, just the the toll that celebrity takes on someone when the lights go off, and just ha- how people are going to deal with that and the different ways people in your life can help you through that or the effect it has on them. And I really think that I really think the second half of this movie is still really good, even if the first half is just way more fun as you watch Ally's career ascend and the the music's all really great. And uh, it's pretty cool that like a first time director, like we said, can pull off some of those music scenes that are really just give you chills, especially the 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 first shallow scene. But I mean, uh, like I I even really get into it. Like you said, that the first song he does sing, or or, well, actually, I was thinking more about the first song he sings when he's at the drag bar. um, When when you said that,
1: Um, maybe maybe it's time to let the old ways die.
0: Yeah, but yeah, you're talking about the. uh, by the wayside by the wayside uh which is which is cool too i mean it was just like man he, he that's how they kick off the movie and it's like he's he's really fully inhabiting this guy and it's a, it's amazing because the, the the way he did that voice and he a- aping sam elliott's voice which he did to try and get him to do the movie it's like it shouldn't have worked as well as it did it's just so ridiculous that it sounds so different from what he's really like that it is that good and uh sam elliott also great happy i mean as as sad as it is bradley cooper didn't get nominated i'm very glad that sam elliott finally got recognized um He's great and he has a couple of the most moving moments in the movie. And uh but yeah, Lady is great too. I mean like she totally like I mean lives up to the hype and it's pretty amazing that like someone that's just so known for something else, like she her back she did have a little bit of an acting background, but to like be able to pull this off and be as good as she I think she really is good in the scenes where she's not singing. Some people are like she sings great and she's fine as an actress, but I like I really think she fully inhabits that character and it's a transformational performance and I'm glad that we came in that close together on it. it looks like we had a few that overlapped in our top 10 so fred i think uh thank you for doing this Um, i'm gonna be curious to see how your your top 10 stacks up against the rest of everyone else's so we'll we'll just have to see but stay tuned for our next list all right welcome back and now i'm joined by my friend hannah to talk about her favorite movies of 2018 hannah thanks for joining me
3: thanks for having
0: me so uh hannah before we actually get into just making you like spout off your list i didn't know if you had any overarching thoughts on 2018 as a year in movies i i, I normally like before i do a podcast with you like i'll stalk your letterbox to be like oh what did you think <laughs> about this but the one thing i i don't really know what where movies stack up for you because it feels yeah, like i, I, I will not even like a list it feels like every time it just seems like you give a movie three and a half stars on letterbox it seems like it's kind I'm, of like i
3: tend to default to the three and a half stars. yeah I've, I, and,
0: and, I, and I've, I've gotten a little stingier myself. my Myself, seeing you do that because i'm like you know like i i feel like i need to like space things out a little more so i honestly have no idea like what your favorite movie of the year is like i i mean shoot i've been i think i've done podcasts with you for over two years now and i honestly can't even like place like oh what would her favorite thing be for that or something like that so mm-hmm. i have no idea so if i had to guess i'd say that you like found a lot of stuff that you liked last year but like maybe nothing reached the heights of something like ladybird for you is that a fair assessment
3: yeah that's totally it i was actually just talking to somebody about this today about how um, I saw lots of movies that I liked this year, but I didn't have, you know, some years it happens and some years it doesn't where you see a movie and you go, that's my number one of the year. Like, I love that movie. And this year I saw lots of things that I liked, but none that I, there weren't really a bunch that jumped out to me as being, that, as being something that I liked that much more than lots of other movies, you know?
0: Yeah. No, and no, I mean, I I kind of made a joke when I saw uh, black Panther at the beginning of the year. Like, Oh man, it feels really weird to like, and almost kind of sad to have seen maybe what the already, the best movie of the year was. And it's like February. And I mean, I don't know if I put that title on it. So I was like more, uh, Compelled to keep it at the top of my list, and it and it it did stay there. But like, I mean, there were only a couple things I ended up like giving like five stars to on Letterbox. And I'm, I've like I said, I've gotten stingier, but not maybe not quite as stingy with like rewarding the five stars (laughs) as you are. So a few things got that for me, but not 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 really anything else. So I'm, but I'm like probably at like the same place. Like I don't think I would put anything above like my number one of maybe the last couple years. Like I don't think I would put anything like on the level of like Lady Bird or Moonlight. But I found like plenty of things i really enjoyed so that's that's kind of where i'm at so uh when i get right to it though uh what did you have as your uh, 10th favorite movie of 2018
3: um as my 10th favorite movie of 2015 i have private life
0: ah okay yeah what, what, what is, did you like about that
3: um i think i'm a big fan of katherine hahn mm-hmm. and i think that she is terrific in this movie i was kind of hoping that i didn't think she was would had a chance of getting an oscar nomination but i kind of thought maybe she would get Uh, maybe some more love and like the precursor awards or critics awards or something. Um, and I just think, especially the first half of private life, like when I was watching it, I had the thought like, Oh, maybe this is my favorite of the year. The first part of that movie where it's mostly just her and Paul Giamatti. And like, you just see their relationship and what their life is like, I think is so good. Yeah. And then it gets a little bit less interesting to me once, um, The other main characters introduced and sort of the plot kind of kicks in i guess
0: yeah we don't have to worry about not spoiling it it's the end of the year i i kind of agree i really really dug that movie for that first part and then i did not understand why they like i I don't think they really set up well enough why they felt compelled to bring their uh their niece into it in that manner Mm -hmm. like it was very evident from the second they made that decision and they make that announcement at the dinner table like man this is gonna really screw up their family dynamics and i don't really understand why they thought it was like they really needed to have their egg donor be someone that close to them. Like it, 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 uh, it just did not seem like a thing that I would do if I was in their situation. I didn't understand why that felt necessary if they were willing to adopt in the first place. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. why does that need to be someone, you know, um, and, and I, I just was questioning that. And,
3: I, but I do think especially that, you know, that first 45 minutes or hour of that movie or whatever is so good at showing you a, Something that happens in a lot of people's lives that you don't necessarily see in movies or TV a lot,
0: or even think about that much.
3: Right, um, and I just think both of them are really good in it, especially Catherine Hahn. And it was just like a really I don't want to say enjoyable because some you know there's a lot of stuff it's in that movie heavy, that's but... kind of sad or hard to watch, but it is like I I liked watching it because I liked the dynamic. Yeah. The two of them together so much. Yeah,
0: did anyone have like a more versatile like year? Or are there any more versatile actresses out there than Catherine Hahn? She's like, I mean,
3: she's w- so good, voicing
0: the 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 villain in Spider Man into the Spider Verse or one of them, but then at the same time can like pull off something like as like dramatic and heartfelt as the, she does in private life. And no, it's like really good and like really really touching and I, I really like the end i like the note it ends on i like movies that great final am, scene a, a, yeah ambiguous endings like that like that's my shit
3: i love love an ambiguous ending yes yeah.
0: yes all right what's your number nine
3: uh my number nine is widows
0: ah which... my number my number three
3: yeah good movie but i I just I do want to say about my top ten. it's pretty arbitrary. you know, you could shuffle these in any way or maybe cycle some out and put others back in you know yeah I to say you I didn't read. actually
0: you didn't actually have a list till I asked you to do this, I'm guessing no
3: I had – well until you asked me to do it before this, yeah, no, I have a list, but, Oh, okay you know there were i i I have a list that I'm looking at, but there were a couple where I'm like, you know, this could go here, whatever so um, but yeah, no, I liked Widows a lot, and widows was a movie that I had been excited about since it was first announced because Mm -hmm. it has just the most insane cast of the year Mm -hmm. besides maybe Spider-Man, which I'll talk about later. Um, and you know, I love, I've, I've liked Steve McQueen's previous movies. I like, uh, Gillian Flynn's other work. I love heist movies. So I was like really excited about it. And you know, it, it was good. I'm, you know, it was disappointing to me that it, didn't make as much money as it maybe could have or, or should have
0: get a single goddamn Oscar nomination,
3: or that, yeah,
0: yeah, I mean i i like I said, it was my third favorite of the year i I could easily put it i i really thought about putting it one because like i I picked up on a lot of things. I went to it twice on my second viewing, where I just like I didn't totally understand like the like why liam Neeson felt the need to like get in the game with Colin Farrell. It didn't make sense to me, and then I picked up on a couple other things on my second viewing, like how he just needed the help of someone that could like pull strings with like the coroner's office or something like that and it, like things like that clicked a lot more and a couple other small things i just picked up on it I, I just didn't really see a whole lot of holes in the movie at all uh i can't disagree if some people think the thing with the sun was a little shoehorned in
3: mm-hmm. uh, but that's it, probably the worst thing about it
0: yeah but i mean like man so many great performances i talked about elizabeth the bicky uh with my friend fred when we were just talking about best supporting actress i mean that was kind of amazing that someone can pull off that many notes in that performance and i mean viola davis is great and then i mean hell i would have been perfectly happy if like daniel kaluuya got a best supporting actor nomination Mm -hmm. and he was in like three scenes
3: yeah or you know brian tyree henry who i'm gonna talk some more about who is just one of my favorite actors right now and you know elizabeth Debicki is great cynthia erivo is good in a small part like you know just such a stacked cast.
0: Yeah, and we're, I'm going to – talk. I mean I, I don't want to step on it because we're going to – my other podcast about the awards, we're going to talk about a certain scene in this movie that I think really ties a lot of it together. But it's just pretty impressive that it can be a heist movie, a movie about race, and a movie about class all in one and not really feel shortchanged in any way, and that's like a huge accomplishment. Um, and that's really why I really thought so highly of it. Um, yeah,
3: I mean the, the heist is not an afterthought, but the heist is a much smaller part of it than you maybe – would think going in it's so much about like the circumstances that would lead to somebody needing to do this and just what it's about
0: yeah and just what it would be like if amateurs were doing something like that as opposed to like and i love oceans 11 it's one of my favorite movies but it's like that's kind of professionals here's what it would look like it would be a little messier it would be a little more fraught if people that are brought together under the circumstances who don't normally do it but it still was kind of fun to see how they did it um
3: right and like that's you know the thing about why it's fun to watch movies like oceans 11 it's because you know like oh everything goes off basically without a hitch and it's fun to watch people who are good at their very specific jobs and have these skills and so it's interesting to see a movie like widows where it's you know could people who this is not what they have been doing their whole life but they're just smart and focused and like what would it be for an average person to try and pull something like this off and so that's an interesting thing to think about
0: Right, right. Was that so? Wait, was that your number nine or eight? I already that was my that. number nine. Yeah, what was your number eight?
3: My number eight is Mission Impossible: Fallout, nice. which is maybe a little bit of a silly choice, but that was one of my favorite like actual theater-going experiences.
0: Yeah, what more could you want year? from an action movie? I mean, sure, it might seem silly on the surface, but like, what what more do you want from a movie like that? You know, well, it
3: was just fun to go to because you know a lot of times I I almost always go to the movies by myself, and a lot of times I go maybe at a at a time or to a movie where there isn't, it's not like a packed house, but I saw mission impossible the Friday it came out in a full theater and like people were really into it. And it's just, I feel like if I rewatched it at home, maybe it wouldn't hold up quite as well, but it was just like, I had a really good time watching it. So
0: you went on the opening Friday. Did you go expecting to be able to use your movie pass? Cause that was the, that was the the date movie pass. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
3: No, I used a gift card for that one. Okay. Um,
0: There you go. (laughs) Um,
3: Yeah. But, it's, it was a little you know, sad, but it
0: was a little sad looking back on that day. But it's, I'm sure you got to see a great movie. So
3: I did, yeah. And it's it's also the kind of movie where if you think about it for half a second, it makes no sense. There's no reason he needed to do that halo jump, for example. <laughs> the you know you don't think about the plot, but it's you had a great time. I love that fight scene in the bathroom where they're smashing right. each other through mirrors. We're like, gonna be talking about just, that in a little bit too. Yeah, um, just a really fun movie.
0: Yeah, and I, I already talked about it with Fred, so I'm not gonna dwell too much on it. And yes, maybe. In these movies, they might possibly conceive of the set pieces before they write the script. But I think the actual mechanics of the plot, I actually do think make a little more sense than a few of the other movies that came before it. So um, some of the others, you really don't want to think too much about it, Mm -hmm. like like two or three especially two um, but <laughs> Two's yeah the worst one yeah. yeah uh i mean even even like five i mean or even in um road nation like there's some stuff that like i didn't really totally thought made sense and i thought everything made sense here but you're right the best way to watch these movies is to just not think too much and just give yourself over to it yeah so uh yep. what's your number seven
3: uh my number seven is minding the gap
0: ah it's which, my um... number eight
3: yeah. And I saw a lot of a lot of good documentaries this year, but this is one that really surprised me and sort of like the like the form of it surprised me. You know, you a lot of times you see a documentary and they can be that something where like the subject is really interesting, but there's not really anything that interesting about the filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And Minding the Gap is a movie where like you 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 think you know what it is and then it turns out to be about something else that is just as interesting or maybe more interesting in the way that the director ends up uh, integrating himself into
0: it yeah um, when you
3: yeah well no I
0: found out after I listened to an interview with Bing Lu and you know he, he's actually just turned 30 he's like way older than Kier. he wasn't like childhood friends with him right but you almost th- I thought he was the guy holding the camera in a lot of that old footage because I, I just watched mid-90s where there's like one of the kids is like camera guy in that and I just thought oh that's what he was and he actually just kind of went back to Rockford and like found these kids um and really edited the movie together in a very seamless way, given the fact that like he didn't have a previous relationship with them. He ingratiated, not ingratiated, integrated himself with them so much to the point where you kind of assumed he already had that connection. Cause he got them to open up so much.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a really, it's a, it's kind of a tough movie to watch and it's sad, but it's also like, it's kind of hopeful, especially with, with Keir and just, I don't know. It's, it's again, a movie about maybe people you don't often see movies about, and um it also has like one of the great like music cues of the year, that mountain goat song at the end, mm. where it, you know I think is like such a cathartic needle drop. Like it, I don't know. Yeah, uh, that's a cool moment. But, yeah.
0: So yeah, the other thing about it is when it, out of nowhere it becomes a movie like about toxic masculinity, and right. uh, that that scene in the car with uh, Zach's girlfriend is like. That I like that Bing Lu had the confidence to go there and ask her those questions, and that was one of the most like riveting parts of the movie for me and I mean and then it's like very very uh, God I don't even know what the word to describe it is, but it's it' I mean in a way it's heartbreaking in a way it's very uh um it's it's just uh, horrifying when he finally gets Zach to open up and you're and because you kind of see like you've been led to think he was like this kind of charming kid that was just a screw up mm-hmm. and then you realize there's something so much darker there and you don't really know what to think at that point and yeah I mean I, I mean I, I, it's impressive that he went there and impressive that he was able to turn the camera around on himself and those scenes with his mom which were also heartbreaking it's it's very sad but like you said it, it lets you go out on a hopeful note
3: yeah and that scene where he finally asks um, the girlfriend about Like whether, you know, that moment when you realize or you start to realize that um, that he's been abusive to her and you I was sort of going, well, what does the movie do with this now? Like, is this still just going to be a movie about skateboarding? And of course, it has to pivot to being something else. But I think that, you know, the movie handles that revelation about as well as it could have and it just, yeah i don't know
0: yeah i mean he could have been afraid to like push it any further and like, maybe for lack of like or for fear of losing the cooperation of these subjects right. and he and he did not and it paid off so i mean really good for him i mean kind of an amazing debut film i mean that guy um i mean it's some of the it's i mean for a documentary it's shot really well like once it even goes to some of these skating scenes or the way he does let the camera linger at certain points it it feels different than your regular talking head documentary you know
3: right well and that's the thing that you know it's about masculinity and abuse and poverty and all of these things but there also is just some really cool skateboarding footage yeah. like it also is about skateboarding so it's just a really interesting movie
0: no for sure I, i'm it's, i'm glad that you had it that high too um what was your uh number six
3: uh my number six is support the girls which we did a whole episode about so we don't i guess really need to go <laughs> no, we, just, too deep into it i can it. just
0: link to that but uh do, do you have any uh quick thoughts you want to share as to why it stacked up that high for you
3: I mean, you know, we've said it before, but I just think that all the performances are great, but especially Regina Hall and Haley Lou Richardson are just so good. And Haley Lou Richardson is so delightful in that movie. And it's another one where, you know, it's not about as heavy as heavy a subject as something like Minding the Gap, but it is about, you know, capitalism and sexism and all these things. But it also just is so fun to watch in a lot of these moments. And it, you know uh it's kind of a cliche but like all those characters feel like real people and i just had a great time watching it
0: yeah i concur i don't really need to add anything because you said it very well i had it really i I don't know why i mean i again i guess my list is pretty arbitrary i put a similar disclaimer to it on letterbox i had it as like my 39th movie of the year but i saw like 104 30 movies last year so there's no like it's not that's not a slight by any means but like i could have you could have easily just like moved it up 20 spots and i like couldn't even like i wouldn't even be mad by bumping everything else down one to do that i i really like that movie too uh what's your number five
3: Number five is Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Yeah, so I knew knew that was
0: I knew that I knew you really dug that. So uh... I
3: loved it. That could maybe be my number one. Like I said, (laughs) you could shuffle any of these around, but uh, I think it's the only movie this year that I saw twice in theaters because I went to see it and then I saw it again with my parents, Mm -hmm. Um, and they both loved it. Really, everybody I've talked to is—I mean, my dad is always into superhero stuff, and my mom—we can get her to watch it. Like she saw Black Panther too, but like sometimes she'll sort of roll her eyes at it. But she like couldn't believe how much she enjoyed Spider Man, and it's just been like. In terms of like people I actually know, probably the most unanimously well received movie this year.
0: Yeah, it's probably, it's probably, it's probably like, getting that Oscar. I'm like super happy for Phil Lord and Chris Miller with all the bullshit they dealt with with Solo. They're gonna be yeah. they're gonna be standing on the Oscar stage in a couple of weeks, and I'm pretty happy for them because I'm big fans of those dudes and that's cool that your parents liked it too i mean like i my, my, my dad was like calling me asking me for movie recommendations last weekend and he they've seen most everything that like i thought would be up their alley and i mean they like black panther they like they sometimes do like superhero stuff so i i probably should have sent them to that but like was there was there like one thing you like i mean there's so much to like in that movie was there one thing that really like surprised you or really like blew you away that made it have such a um great impression on you
3: I mean, it's maybe a basic compliment, but the animation is incredible. Like it, there aren't any other movies that look like this that use that actually use computer animation in such an interesting way and use all these different styles of art. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, but just the voice cast is insane. Like there's so many great actors in this, even in the small parts.
0: Yeah. If if Marshall Ali wins the Oscar for green book, can we pretend that it's for this? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, I mean, I I really like it too. It's just cool to have a fresh take on, Spider Man in general. I mean, they kind of even spoofed, they obviously spoofed that throughout the movie. And, but like, I mean, people have been talking about Miles Morales for a few years now. And it's really cool that they just went there and uh, finally did it and did it in a very fresh way that felt different from really any superhero movie we'd seen before.
3: Um, yeah. I mean, it's got, it has great action scenes and, but also like really good, interesting characters. And it's funny. Like, I just, I love Jake Johnson as sad spider-man you know like he's so like that made me laugh so much and like the relationship between him between him and miles is great like it's just it's just a really fun movie i yeah, I mean, kind of couldn't believe how good
0: it was. Yeah, like I said when I did the podcast on it, it really never loses sight of the fact that it's Miles' story, but it gives it gives Peter uh, Peter B. Parker that like it does it, it gives him a full arc even totally within that. And I thought all the other supporting characters are they're used just right. I mean, like I don't think I would have wanted any more Spider Ham than I got as much as I laughed <laughs> at him or something like that. Like you right. know, same with Spider Man Noir. And we're gonna get a Gwen Stacy movie. It sounds like, which I'm totally cool with. And it so and I mean I liked what we got to see of her, and uh, we already shouted out. Catherine hahn and brian tyree henry and uh good jo- good job by them for getting all those people to sign up
3: and uh Haley steinfeld it's like not a podcast with us unless we mention Haley steinfeld
0: yes that's our girl <laughs> uh what's your number three
3: uh my number uh there's my number four four sorry uh my number four is first reformed
0: ah yes uh i i had i had that fairly high too i think it's in my top 20 or so so uh, what did you really dig about first reformed
3: it is one of the only movies that I've seen that really is about how scary the world is right now, I guess, which is maybe kind of like a silly thing to say, but like, it's one of the few things I've seen that is like trying to grapple with how climate change affects the way that we are going to live and think about things going forward, which is like, I mean, this is all sounding like such a bummer and it's not like, it's not like a fun movie to watch necessarily, but it is the movie, one of the movies from this year that I have thought about the most, Right, especially the the scene where, which one of my favorite scenes of the year, when Ethan Hawk towards the beginning of the movie, when Ethan Hawke first goes to talk to the guy, to Amanda Seyfried's husband, and he just lays out <laughs> all of this terrifying information about what we've done to the planet, and it's like, it's
0: you're stepping. Saw- You're stepping on the other podcast we're about to record. I had, oh, that, I, 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 I had that down there too, but no, it, it, well, it, it, it is one of the more uh, arresting scenes I saw this year. It,
3: for sure. Yeah, and so it's. I said that like sort of jokingly because I don't see real horror movies that this was the scariest movie I saw all year. But like, I've thought about that scene so much, and I just think it also is an interesting. Like Ethan Hawk is great in it, and it's it's an interesting perspective on sort of religion and religion's place in the world right now and how it is compatible or not with the ways the world has changed recently. And I don't know, again, it's like, it's, it's like a heavy movie but it's really one that i've thought about a lot since i saw it you know like eight months ago or whatever and i still think about it
0: yeah i saw uh i saw what might be my end up being my last 2018 movie on sunday capernaum which was a lebanese movie that got yeah, nominated yeah. for best foreign film and, and it, it deals with similar stuff like whether or not it's a responsible thing to like bring kids into the world it right. it, it, it gets at that in like a, a very different way but like it's a it's kind of funny that in this moment like we're getting a few movies that that just come in uh that are coming at it from uh that perspective and also at the same time like as me i come from somewhere that's a pretty religious and conservative area of florida in the panhandle and um i think that there is a character in the in that movie i'm not remembering his name now but that is kind of like the head of a church and is like Mm -hmm. um is kind of holding himself out as like a pillar of the community while at the same time like advocating for a lot of policies that uh are pretty harmful and it's, it's just a it felt like a more uh it felt like a, a different kind of critique of religion that we don't exactly see in movies right. this year to come at it from that uh, climate change perspective. I mean, like, I think there's a lot of value in movies like uh, An Inconvenient Sequel, or like, which came out last year, things like that, that obviously directly talk about climate change, but to put it in the context of a movie like this and in a in a traditional Paul Schrader type character, uh, driving the bus, um, with respect to being concerned about those things is it, it's pretty unique and, um, really interesting. And I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed it too. Uh, what's your number three?
3: My number three is, can you ever forgive me?
0: Ah, okay. I didn't, uh, yeah, I couldn't even remember if you had seen that.
3: Yeah. Um, I liked it a lot. Um, another one where it, the main attraction of it is two great lead performances and two performances that play off of each other really well. Um, I have always liked Melissa McCarthy, but I feel like she does not often get material that is worthy of her. So it was nice to, um, see her get actually a a good part in a good movie and, um, richard e Grant is just delightful in this also.
0: Yeah, he's putting on like one of the most charming Oscar campaigns ever uh oh, and with, without even without even very much funding from his uh studio. He's just the most charming dude ever on Twitter. But uh no, I mean, I really liked it too. I almost like uh I, I and I and I really liked her performance. I almost wanted them to like go a little bigger in explaining this in in showing the scope of what she did because it almost feels like a rather quaint scam, but it <laughs> actually it actually went on for like a pretty long time and I and like generated a lot of money and i i thought maybe the movie almost could have like gotten at the scope of that more and i but i mean like i still like really enjoyed every scene where it's just like the two of them together it's great and that's like worth the private price of admission alone i i really didn't like that jack's love interest was played by tony from 13 reasons why it's like my least oh, favorite it's like it's like my least favorite tv character in like the last 10 years probably uh I, that, that 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 took me out of it for a second that's not really the movie's fault i know they couldn't they weren't casting him with me in mind but uh but yeah, no, I I, I, de- I definitely enjoy it, but I, I just didn't come across to me as like a big operation that would have garnered so much FBI attention, and I I, I I almost think it could have gone bigger, but this is an independent film, and I'm sure they had their own limitations, but yeah, I mean— That's
3: kind of—oh, sorry. That's kind of one of the things that I liked about it is that it was kind of such a low-stakes crime, and that—because, you know, I love, I love movies about— like heists or sort of elaborate criminal operations which this is it was rip
0: off some rich people that want to show off signed letters
3: (laughs) right but you still got to see every step in the process of how they pulled this off even though it's you know essentially a victimless crime like it, it it still like took the care to show you exactly how they pulled all of this off and how smart they had to be to do it and so you get really invested in a well, couple forged letters well, like, she, you well know.
0: she also saw the letters as like an extension of her her art like she was right. channeling the voice of these writers because and that's that's her expression of art because no one was really caring about her books in the way that she wanted to but i almost thought we like i mean it's really hard to i actually just i think i just said this on or no i just said this on a, the last movie podcast i actually did but like it's hard to make watching someone write interesting mm-hmm. but that's i almost like point. i don't like i just i don't really I, I really get annoyed when i like i watch like literary types like talk about how important they are and it's like yeah but i don't really understand why i should care about you so it may maybe it's asking too much but i almost wanted to get more of a sense of how she was going about like uh writing in someone else's voice to like show that like yeah she she, was really talented it's not like the biggest criticism like i I still really enjoyed the movie uh yeah so uh what's your number two
3: uh my number two is black panther Ah, which my number one little movie you may have heard of yeah no i mean and i don't really know what there is to add about black panther yeah it's been talked about especially not you know a couple white people being like here's why it was good but (laughs) it's just a great movie like i i watched it again i saw it in theaters obviously and i watched it again over christmas and it is just it's so beautiful to look at i hope it wins the costume design oscar
0: yeah unfortunately probably the only one that has a chance of winning yeah still bullshit that uh they couldn't give it a screenplay nomination at least uh, or,
3: you know, I was really hoping Michael B. Jordan could get in there, even though it seemed like a long shot.
0: Yeah, yeah that would have been really cool. Uh, but I, w- I just wanted to be able to say, like, Michael B. Jordan or Ryan Coogler were Oscar nominees, and we still can't say that. It's ridiculous. I know, it's frustrating. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I, I've i already talked about that one to death. So, if, um, I don't like you said, we don't need two more white people singing its <laughs> praises any more than they already have. So, uh, without any further ado, what's your number one movie of the year?
3: Uh, my number one is If Beale Street Could Talk.
0: Okay, it's uh, my number nine well yeah so what, what, what did you what did you love so much about it
3: again it has this phenomenal cast um, and I hadn't read the book mm-hmm. so um I was interested to see that it used so much voiceover to convey the these lines from the book but it never you know sometimes voiceover, you can kind of oh, feel yeah. unnecessary or like too much, but I thought it was really beautifully handled in this. I think um Kiki Lane and Stephen James are both really good and and again, this is another one where you really feel the relationship between these two characters
0: yeah and- what what I talked about on my podcast about it was that like. You know, I don't actually think you like get to know them that well as people as far as like specifically their personalities, what makes them tick, and everything like that. But like the performances are so good and just all the filmmaking around them is so good with you know, with the score and the how it's shot and everything that like I totally bought they were in love together, even if I don't even yeah. know if they're like the most well developed characters ever
3: and yeah the the score is phenomenal i've mm-hmm. have been just listening to the score on its own like while I do other stuff, and it definitely and,
0: it definitely didn't get enough Oscar uh, nominations, but thankfully Nicholas Bertel did get in
3: yeah and um Regina King, I'm so glad got nominated because she's an actor I like a lot, and uh, she's great in this, you know is great in everything she does and this that the whole sequence where she goes to Puerto Rico is so good and so sad, but like it's all it's all on her face like that scene where she's looking in the mirror and she's like doing her makeup and puts her wig on. And like, it's so good. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, all the performances are good. But and Brian Tyree Henry has that one phenomenal scene.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's, where, let's, hold, let's hold off on talking too much about it because I think okay, we're going to talk sorry. about that in Best Scene of the Year, which is a category that we're going to talk about on my separate awards podcast. But yes, that's really, that's a, that's an amazing scene. And yeah, I mean I I, I I don't want to dwell too much on it because I, I just talked about it on my previous podcast – or on, on, with Fred in the previous segment. But I mean I, I'm i totally right there with you. I It's not quite on the level of Moonlight for me. There were a few things like um, just throughout the – there might have been a couple slow parts in the movie for me and a couple other things I could nitpick with here or there, but like – I, I mean, I still really loved it, and it's like it's like a shame that it somehow is like getting overlooked for like Best Picture when we are nominating things like uh, Green Book and Bohemian yeah. Rhapsody and, and it's Vice. So
3: frustrating. Uh, or even just something like costume design or cinematography. Like it's a beautiful movie mm-hmm. to look at, and I don't know. I was I was annoyed that it didn't get uh, as much Oscar love as it maybe should have.
0: Yeah, I mean, ugh, God. But yeah, it's great. Uh, Barry Jenkins is great. Uh, hopefully we're, I know he's, he's about to like spend a big chunk of this year making the Underground Railroad series Mm -hmm. for Amazon. So I'm hoping that he has like another movie ready to go once he's done with that. If, if, unless he wants to take a break, he's earned it, but, uh. Uh, we love you, Barry, and you—you uh, you, you earned the highest honors from Hannah. And I am going to make like an aggregate <laughs> top ten of the year uh, when I am done with the whole podcast, uh, with all these podcasts I am doing. with Everyone's top ten, so between like me and Fred and Hannah, it's all—it's uh, Beale Street's off to a pretty good start. So, Hannah, thank you for joining me for this, and uh, everyone can jump over to the other podcast I am going to post about the, at the same time as this one to hear Hannah and I talk about our uh, favorite movie scenes of the year. But while you are still on this one, stay tuned for uh, the next top ten and welcome back now i'm joined by my friend daniel lima who has been on several of the podcasts thus far last joining us on the if beale street could talk podcast talking about his friend barry jenkins and i'm (laughs) pretty sure though that if beale street could talk is not going to be in his top 10 daniel before i jump into your top 10 do you have any quick big picture thoughts about the year in movies in 2018 compared to the last few years it
4: was actually a pretty pretty good year for me uh i forgot did movie pass collapse at the in during this year or at yeah, the it end was, of last it was,
0: it was in july it feels like it was so long ago but it was only about f- f- um five months ago yeah i figured because i saw a
4: decent amount of movies this year more so i think than any other year besides last yeah i've got like i think 130 movies so far and still going
0: yeah it's about that's about where i was at too at the end of the year so uh and i got a ton
4: that i actually really really loved that i would give like a four out of 4.5 out of five or above so i enjoyed the year i thought that it was a really great year even if the oscars aren't going to reflect that
0: yeah, well, uh, let's not get too sad about that at the moment. We're talking, we're talking about the good stuff in this yeah, episode, we're and, about then, the good and stuff. then and then in our other conversation to talk about the stuff <laughs> that other people didn't think was so good that you thought was good. Uh, which some of that might appear here, but and I'm trying to be a little more brief uh, with each of these conversations as I have less to say about the movies that keep popping up. Uh, but at the same time, I have a feeling that you're going to have a lot on your top ten that uh, hasn't come up yet. So let's go ahead and get it started. Well, what was your number ten of 2018?
4: My number ten is going to be. Hellfest.
0: okay so i'm ceding the floor to you because i have no idea what that is
4: <laughs> Hellfest was this uh slasher movie that came out uh i think in october ish it was a uh slasher set at a um you know halloween horror night style event
0: oh i do remember where... the trailer for that i didn't realize that came, that must have came and went fairly quickly actually though.
4: that came and went super quick yeah uh i didn't hear anybody i didn't even hear anybody saying that they didn't like it which you know people didn't like it apparently it was below it was sitting at below a 60 percent was sitting at i believe 39 39 percent
0: so for for, i mean for what what did it do to make it better than the average slasher fit for those that might be interested in checking it out
4: well, I think that one of the issues with the slasher genre, even going back to its heyday, even going back to the good ones, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or, you know, original Halloween, is I think they've always had a challenge in, uh, you know, making these characters feel like actual people instead of just empty lambs to the slaughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that this movie does a really good job at that. It's a bunch of college kids, you know, who two of which haven't seen two, two girls haven't Connected with each other in a long time. Something happened in their past. You never really hear what's said because, you know, that's not how conversations work. You don't ever have, you know, two people going up and say, now, as you know, you know, a year ago, you did blank. You never really hear it. It's all inference. And the, you know, the way that they talk and communicate to with each other, it feels really natural. It feels like people these age, this age would be talking about these sorts of things, talking in this manner, and does a really good job in building these people up before the inevitable slaughter comes. And might I say, the slaughter is fantastic. Really great effects work. One of the reasons I love the slasher movie in comparison to other horror, like, you know, hereditary, these paranormal horror movies, is that they just don't, they lack that visceral touch that, you know, you have when you have somebody coming at you with a knife or a (laughs) hammer. Mm. And uh, the setting adds a whole lot because... You know, you do have these, you know, you know, jump scares that people really hate on. But because of the setting, where you're expected to be scared, you have people
0: jumping out at yeah, you at you, all times. You don't actually know like what how to feel about it when it uh, one of those scenes develops, I guess, right?
4: Yes, yeah, so for all you know, it could be part of the park. It could be the killer who is after this group of people, and only the you know lead character realizes it. Uh, It it, it creates this tension that is, you know, palpable throughout the end of the movie. And might I say that that ending is killer.
0: All right. Well, that's a good tease for people that haven't seen it because it sounds like probably not a lot of people listening to this have. And I I was just talking to Fred when we recorded a conversation about uh, Velvet Buzzsaw, just about how, like, I'm not usually a big traditional slasher fan. So, I mean, if I'm going to watch one of those, I need it to give me something a little extra. So if you're saying it has more character development than your average one and plus a unique setting that – adds a new element that makes me a little more intrigued to possibly check it out if it shows up on a streaming service so uh what's your number nine
4: my number nine is gonna be the night comes for us talking about streaming service this was actually released on netflix it's uh directed by it is uh, horror adjacent it's directed by this it's an indonesian martial arts film directed by i i'm gonna mangle this name timo tajanto uh To to be clear,
0: I've not seen this either, so Daniel is going to give his brief thoughts as to why it's worth checking out, and then we're going to move on because I have nothing to add.
4: (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, directed by this guy who uh, he he made a a martial arts movie two years ago, Headshot, which I thought was really excellent too. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Indonesian martial arts movies—the first thing you think of is The Raid, directed by uh, Gareth Evans, which is was this really brutal, hard R-rated, you know action film and these movies take that up to 11 it is gory as hell and it is some of the most intricate action choreography of the year i consider it to be you know the best action of the year Mm. you know fuck this you know dude trying to kill himself in mission impossible (laughs) this is where it's at um it stars uh, one of the Joe Taslim, who I believe was one of the characters in the raid, and uh, the main character from the raid, Equal Away, is the main. The lead actor is actually the villain. The plot is a little, it's a little messy. It's a little too stuffed, just a tad too stuffed, full of plot. But it's it's a genuinely interesting one to see as it unfolds, which is rare for martial arts movies. But honestly, you're coming here for the action. And I don't know what I can say beyond it is stellar, one of the best of the decade.
0: All right, well, that's good to know. If it's on Netflix, easy for people to go check out. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you What do you have at eight?
4: At eight, I've got Assassination Nation.
0: Okay, well, I haven't. I never actually talked about this one really in the podcast because I just, I, for whatever reason, didn't really get around to doing one on it. But I did see this one. So, what did you dig about that?
4: Well, when it comes to these sorts of exploitation throwbacks. You know, there's an expectation from me that it's going to feel a a little bit nasty. Like the trailer of this movie, you know, (laughs) included a trigger warning, which I saw and thought, oh, it's going to be one of these try hard, you know, offend the libs or whatever. Screw this political correctness sort of movie that's going to be insufferable to sit through and also really ugly in its sexual politics. I I was surprised to find that, I think those trigger warnings were actually genuine. This is a really solidly uh, leftist movie, which was something that I didn't anticipate. Uh, It has some of the best directed sequences of the year. There's a uh, a party scene, you know, intersplashed with a sex scene that's, you know, out of the De Palma movie. There's a wonderful oneer uh, as these girls. It's a movie about, um, I apologize, I didn't even talk about what it's about. It's a movie about this town. It I might be actually Salem. It might be called Salem explicitly, where um, everyone's personal files are hacked. And so everybody learns these secrets about each other. And then the town devolves into utter chaos. Eventually descending upon this group of four girls, high school girls, who they blame for the uh, accident. It has a has a lot of social commentary packed in about you know you know uh, uh, homosexuality, uh, you know homophobia, transphobia, uh, political correctness, yes, but also you know privacy, uh, you know the the current um, um, attack on media it's got so many ideas stuffed in and it handles them i think pretty well and beyond that is just a genuinely fun genre movie to have a really thoughtful movie be a really unfettered genre experience is unusual and i think assassination nation really nails that
0: yeah i agree it it packed a lot in there with just regards to whatever it had to say about the youths today and Toxic masculinity too is one thing you didn't exactly mention, mm. but they do get they do get at that with how uh, one of the main characters interacts with her on again off again boyfriend. Also, just technology in general and how that affects the this generation more than anyone's ever had to worry about and just kind of the online mob mentality is something that gets talked about a lot these days whenever anything bad happens to a public figure not that these are dealing with public figures but just the effect that that can have and i and i I respected everything it went to with went we did with that i thought the last act got a little crazy for me and that might have been what you enjoyed about it but uh sometimes i'm just like i i I one thing i guess my ideal movie is just a little more grounded than it was but i didn't really dock it too much for that because like it was clearly going for that on purpose and that – that was very intentional. So like, if it's not completely for me, there's no real shame in that. Uh, right. what, what was your number seven?
4: My number seven is one that I actually saw yesterday, which, ah. I mean, goes to show you that even counting down the days to the Oscars, you, I still got stuff that might end up cracking this list. Yeah. Uh, I saw Cold War actually, the Polish movie that's actually surprisingly up for best director.
0: Yeah, and well, yeah, that was the big surprise. But it's it's there for best, I think, cinematography and best mm. uh, and uh, best foreign film as well. So, what Deservedly made you what, what, so. what made you connect so much with Cold War?
4: Well, I love the director's previous film, Ida. It's a movie that I saw in 2014, yeah, which I liked, was I liked Ida too. yeah, I was a huge fan of it at the time. And uh, seeing this movie, I was told going in, I was told by friends that I probably wouldn't like it, but you know, actually. I really, really dug it. It's a romance set across the decades in uh, in uh, Poland uh, at the start of the you know communist government. And also, going like France
0: in. and like Yugoslavia too. I think it's, yeah, it bounces around.
4: Yeah, it bounces around. Watching this movie, I couldn't help. It's hard for me to you know think about this movie and all the things that it gets right without thinking about La La Land. Uh, which is a similar narrative, you know. In right. this movie, the this is a uh, uh, the, the man the man in the relationship, the lead is a uh, he's like a music director, yeah. a ranger, and such. And he, you know, he's doing this, you know, like you know how the Communist Party would like get like try to stir nationalistic pride. Uh, he gathered a, a bunch a group of a uh, uh, rural like townspeople who sing all these folk songs. <laughs> and uh the girl is part of this
0: crew siberian american idol
4: yes siberian american idol and uh they these two fall in love through that uh which is i think fairly similar to like you know the artists falling in love in la la land i think that in both cases the characters might seem a little bit underwritten but are you know vastly uh uh, improved upon by these performances uh Uh, I'm sorry. I'm blanking on the name of the actress. Joanna Kulig. Yes. Joanne Kulig. Joanne Kulig. Yeah. Yeah. She, she is fantastic. She's one of the best actresses of the year. It's a riveting performance. Watching her go is just so much fun. Uh, The relationship itself, it's, you know, obviously destructive relationship to everyone, but these two and uh, watching them grow together, come apart only to come together again to their own detriment it's i mean just a fascinating thing to watch it's also hilarious (laughs) uh it's really really funny unexpectedly so it's short it's it's you know a brisk pace of 80 something
0: 86 or something like that which i mean you normally like it when a movie gets in and out that fast, and I, I you made that comment about some criticizing it for being underwritten, and that almost like implies that any part of the script is weak, which I, di- I would disagree with. I just think that, like, it could have been 10 minutes longer, and then you could have had more scenes with them. And I do agree, my but only but issue, that, 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 but that's bad. not like that's a that's almost if that's the worst thing you can say about a movie, then it's a pretty good movie, you oh, know? That's a pretty good movie, yeah. I
4: also want to say right now that it also. Reminds me of Barry Jenkins. One of the pr- problems I had with the uh, his movie this year, Beale Street, was that the couple I c- could never really fully understand why these two love each other. And while this movie isn't quite as, I mean, it's still pr- pretty firmly art house territory where it's you know you never get a scene where they talk about how they feel about each other. Yeah,
0: they're they're all of a sudden just making out after like he like after her tryout and he like yes he but says something the about chemistry.
4: But the chemistry is there. I agree. The performances really sell it. I think that this movie accomplishes what it, – it accomplishes what Barry Jenkins could never possibly do, which is create two human beings.
0: All right. We're not going to have that discussion again. <laughs> I, only, I only have so much time here. You can go check out our right, Bill Street right. podcast if you want to hear someone argue with Daniel about uh, Barry Jenkins. What's your number six?
4: My number six is going to be The Ballad of Buster Scruggs.
0: All right. So uh, I, I saw that, and I I mean I, I enjoyed parts of The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I enjoyed like maybe half of The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. But uh, it sounds like you got enough out of each of the vignettes to really put it up there on your list.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I should note here that I am a huge, huge Coen Brothers fan. They were the first – got my first love movie loves. Uh, I remember seeing Barton Fink, and that's the moment that I was like, oh, this film thing really – clicks with me so i've always loved them this movie i was a little reluctant going into because i had heard you know varying reports of it being kind of scattershot and it's an anthology and this and that i thought that every single segment you know minus that gold prospector one, Oh, that i one, like I that think, one was, really, you really like yeah. that one? it's funny what's funny about this movie is that whenever i talk about it you know everyone has their own like oh i really love that one but this one i didn't really like that was the only one that kind of fell flat to me because I, I couldn't really get what it's getting at. Although each segment I think does, you know, it's it, it, it does play to that, you know, certain cynicism that the Coen brothers approach every aspect of life with. Mm-hmm. Um, but that first segment with uh, Tim Blake Nelson, it's just an absolute joy. Uh, the the Dave, the Dave Franco segment, I James thought Franco. was, you know, a, um, was it James Franco?
0: Yeah. I thought it was Dave. No, Dave, was, Dave was the one in Beale Street. James is this. Man. I, I agree I with most people that, that thought that near Algoni's, I think, was what is how you pronounce what the one that James Franco was in. thought that one was a little too short. Like, I, most people, I, I, I feel like I read a few people that agreed where it felt like it was like maybe like missing something before it got to the last scene, mm. um, where maybe you saw him I, cheating death a little more than he actually had. Uh, but...
4: I, I found it funny, and the abruptness, yeah. I, I rather liked. Oh, okay. I really loved the Leslie Nielsen one. Uh, wait, Leslie Nielsen, Leslie Nielsen? Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson one, right. Uh, I, I really enjoyed his segment. With I thought Dudley Dursley was, from
0: Harry Potter playing the, yeah, the cripple oh, speech was, giver.
4: Oh, wow, yeah, and the counting chicken. It's really oppressively dark, and so I understand why it could turn some people off. But I thought that it was really, really artfully conveyed, and I just— it was hypnotic. The – what was the next? The, the Gold Prospect one I wasn't yeah, a huge you, fan of. I couldn't really get a – The next one was – my
0: favorite one was the uh, Zoe Kazan one, The Girl Who Got Rattled. I really liked it. I
4: I liked the romance between Zoe Kazan and – I forgot who the, the man was. His
0: name is Bill Heck, uh, that actor. He's like kind of a newcomer that's done a lot of stage stuff, but I really liked him a lot. Yeah, it was
4: good, and I enjoyed all that, you know, the period dialogue, the entr- eccentricities of these characters, which, you know, the Coen brothers really love. The only detriment – to that segment. And I think the only thing keeping this movie from being, I think, one of the top three or four Cohen Brothers movies, rather than if they're like fifth or sixth, is that it's so racist, man. Yeah, that not is... not
0: exactly the best depiction of most nuanced depiction of Native Americans.
4: Yeah, and of course it's adapted from a 1901 short story. But I mean, any other filmmaker I think would know to, you know, you know, adapt the story to modern sensibilities. And I think the Cohen Brothers are just race-blind directors yeah they don't
0: exactly have a have you can't can you can you rattle off like five names off the top of your head of people of color that have appeared in their movies the
4: waynes brothers i
0: mean one (laughs) of the waynes brothers and i think that's it the guy that played uh mike yanagita in fargo uh oh yeah yeah wasn't he a liar in that too Probably, uh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Wasn't yes. he the
4: one that yeah. he lies to? Yeah, yeah, he, he lies
0: to Francis McDormand, and then it's like after that, I, uh, the the the, uh, the 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 rail car
4: operator and uh, Oh brother, where art thou? Yeah, yeah, there's not not the <laughs> yeah,
0: there's not a lot.
4: there's not a lot. There's not a lot. But I did genuinely like the segment, and I thought that this, the final segment. Uh, I thought was just a really wonderful wall-to-wall bunch of characters locked in a small space, interacting with each other. It allows the Coens to go full ham on their like you know eccentricities. I
0: liked how, and... the, mood, I liked how the mood of that one shifted. You could really feel when it like took a dark turn, but I didn't really like love the actual dialogue. Mm-hmm. I actually loved. Oh, I loved the dialogue yeah. and
4: that ending. I think I think it's a deliberate callback to uh, the amicus portmanteau horror of the '60s and '70s. You know these movies where you know they were in th- horror anthologies. That always ended, you know, with that same sort of dark turn that this one ends with. Uh, It's a strange place thing to do in a western movie, but uh, you know that's why I love the Coens. Unexpected.
0: What's your what's your number five?
4: My number five. Ooh, that's going to be A Star Is Born. That was a little higher on my list actually when I first saw it. I came out of it loving it. I was going in, you know fully expecting it to be the best movie yeah, of the year. I,
0: I never actually had a conversation with you about it. I just knew you kept hyping it all year, even especially <laughs> after the trailer. And then uh, I couldn't tell how serious you were. And then all of a sudden oh, you came was, out and you gave it five stars and then you were going to do the podcast and then you fell deathly ill. So uh, what, 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 what about a star is born like really resonated with you that uh, earned it the spot on your list?
4: Well, before seeing it, I had seen all the other adaptations of this story uh, out of them. Uh, the fourth last one with uh what's his name Chris Christopherson and uh what's her name um, you know the one who sings the song from satanic what's her name Barbara Streisand Barbara Streisand yeah, that's that was a that was a good movie that that's the one that this movie i think is pulling the most from it is it has terrible music like <laughs> really awful music so awful that if somebody told me they hated that movie i'd be oh it must be the music that makes sense but you know solid uh the most famous one with Julie Garland i thought was you know Eh, you know, it's very slight. I don't, you know, think much of it. And I thought the original was pretty fantastic. I think here, you know, uh, Bradley Cooper really grounds the story in a way that makes it far more appealing than any of the previous iterations. Lady Gaga is, you know, fantastic in this movie. Bradley Cooper himself is really fantastic in this movie. Uh, I think that it really handles the, uh, how self-destructive this man is in the, best possible way i think that bradley cooper grounds this romance in a way that feels real in a way that none of these other movies managed to do uh watching these two interact is it's it's riveting because it just feels like two people falling in love you're falling in love with them while they do it it's amazing
0: such a romantic daniel
4: yeah no i when when lady gaga that first when she when she's walking down the, uh, the the alleyway and like you see the title come up, a star is born. Yeah, that is you pretty chilling. Yeah. You feel it. You um, feel it. This is just you know an you know an adult drama, not in, you know adult as in saucy, but adult in you know the fact that these are really complicated characters, she, really she's... complicated people.
0: Yeah, so you probably went into a Cold War expecting to be pretty uh, um, resentful of Pavel Pawlikowski knocking Bradley Cooper out of Best Director. And now you probably can't be too upset about it since you really enjoyed oh, no. Cold War.
4: No, I'm not too upset yeah. at all. I think that Powell probably deserves it over Cooper, but I think that Cooper really nails it in a way that I think that he's been getting a little shafted yeah. uh, for what he managed to accomplish here. Yeah. Uh, and the music is great. I mean, come on. Yeah. Shallow is a great song.
0: Yeah, no one else needs to hear me talk about this because um, I've already talked about it with Fred, and I'm sure it's going to pop mm-hmm. up on someone else's list. So uh, what's your right. number four? My number four
4: is going to be Black Klansman
0: all right well so we we actually already had a long discussion about that so yeah, I don't, that's
4: right we did yeah, yeah. so I don't,
0: I don't think we need to dwell too much on it i can refer people back to our podcast no. which i think was like the 10th episode but do mm-hmm. you have anything you quickly want to add i'm sure you're happy for spike to finally get that best director nomination
4: oh yeah i'm gonna be so so mad when green book wins best picture but yes i am happy for spike to win to to, to get that nom let's just I hope that he is...
0: let's just hope that he actually has a legit chance of winning screenplay over green book which should be very nice um yeah no, i mean no wait no no green book's an original black yeah that's right that's right it is so yeah yeah, yeah. but i mean so luckily they're not up against each other there but i mean uh it's great that he has finally been recognized as a director and um it'd be really cool just to have him win any oscar so if he wins screenplay just to hear him be able to get up and address the academy would be pretty cool
4: and i would love it if he said screw bring green book while he does it
0: yeah for sure uh what's your number three my three is gonna be
4: spider-man into the spider-verse which is a terrible title but uh Fucking great movie.
0: Yeah, so I think uh, my friend Hannah, who was just on before you, had that at number four. So it might end up in our aggregate top 10. Uh, uh, and I, I never actually talked to you about that one. So, uh, what did you really enjoy about Spider Verse?
4: See, when I first got out the theater, that was my number one of the year. I said, okay, there is no other movie that, you know, is putting as much on the screen as this one. Our friend Josh Brown walked out saying, this movie belongs in the Museum of Art. This is crazy. Uh, See, the problem with Spider Verse is that it's really hard to explain with words what this movie does because it is such a visually driven movie. Of course it is, you know, it's a, it's a good story. You know, miles Morales, it's the miles Morales, Spider-Man, uh, these universes are converging on each other. So he interact with the Peter Parker of another universe as he's developing his powers, you know, uh, this and, and like, you know, he's got this stuff going on with his father where like, you know, he, they, they have a kind of disconnect and he's, you know, it is a good story. It, but this is a movie that is – with a visual style that is – it's hard for me to even put into words. It's trying to make it out to look like a comic book.
0: It does a good job. It has hard edges yeah. on all of the images. has hard edges on all the images.
4: It, it's throwing so much out on the screen. It's just an absolute visual treat in a way. Whenever somebody – the best I can do to explain it is they're trying to kill any epileptics in the audience. That's it. <laughs> If you have epilepsy, don't see this movie. You will die in your seat. It is just the most visually ingenious movie of not only the year, but I think arguably the decade. Wow. it's got It's in the running forever. It's in the running forever. This is exactly what I want out of an animated movie, a movie that you cannot possibly do live action. And for that, it has my utmost respect i really love this movie but it's really hard for me to get, yeah. dive into
0: that's a great way to put it i'm not going to elaborate too much because i just uh, talked about the other aspects of the movie with hannah largely we mm-hmm. didn't get too much into the visuals other than the fact that i think that shot the first time he jumps down wearing the black suit when they drop in one of the oh, um, hip-hop it's songs a great shot is, is it's great. a great shot um, it's a great that, shot but
4: that, it so, doesn't even that's not even that's not even the top 10 greatest shots in the
0: movie that, that, so. that's the one that stuck with me but like i mean I, you you really did as best you really could i know i get yeah. you're saying that it's intimidating to try and put it into words what this movie looks like but you did a pretty good job and we kind of already broke it down from other angles in the previous segment so i'm going to keep it moving what's your number two
4: my number two is going to be paddington two Damn, Uh, the only it's the only movie that i saw twice this year i believe in theaters it's i walked into paddington one you know how was that 2015 thinking this can't be that good after everybody told me it was good i was like this can't be good i walked out oh yeah that was actually really fucking good and i walked into this one thinking They can't do it again. You know, my man, you know, Paul King, he can't do this again. He can't make the Talking Bear movie good two times. And it ended up, I cried, cried like a baby in the theater. It's so sweet.
0: He gave us the best best critique of the American criminal justice system I saw in 2018. Oh, yeah.
4: Paddington, he's the hero that we need, but we don't deserve. Love it. It is, you know, this movie, you could think a thousand different ways that this movie could just be another bad kids movie. And it's not. Uh, Hugh, Hugh Grant is excellent as the villain. Uh, there's some really amazing visual elements here like the, the the storybook scene, that little sequence where he's you know imagining what it would be like bringing his mother to England uh, and it's in this po- it's told through this pop-up book that's mm. just so sweet and it looks great and you know all everyone's fire everyone's at the top of their game, all these cast members. It's brilliant. it's a brilliant movie. It should have yeah. been in the Best Picture conversation. It should oh, have been because it is. Everyone Everyone loved this movie. I think at a t- for a time it was the best-reviewed movie on Rotten Tomatoes, and nobody—it was never in the—it con- was only in the conversation for people to say, this movie should be in the conversation, and it's a shame that it's not. It's lovely. Go see it with everyone that you care about.
0: All right. What's your best movie of 2018?
4: <sighs> Can't believe that I'm saying this. I never thought that I'd be the one here to say this. Madeline's Madeline.
0: Yeah, so I, I also saw Madeline's Madeline, and I, you know, I, I definitely like parts of it, but what, what made it just like really work for you? Well, I was told going in that I was going to hate this movie,
4: like utterly hate this movie, and uh, within the first five seconds, you get this you know shot of – this close-up shot of some lady, some random lady saying, you are not a person. You are a cat. And I thought, oh, I'm going to hate this movie. I'm going to utterly hate this movie. Yeah, she didn't,
0: could, could, the- because she didn't tell you you were a horse. That was why you were upset. Yeah, about that's me. why, <laughs> that's why, of course. But yeah,
4: no, I, I, it's the kind of like at first I thought this was just going to be that kind of art house, you know, non-narrative thing that always grinds my gears because, you know, it it offers nothing except for a place for smart people to just fill the empty space with their thoughts about what it could possibly mean and then call it great when it's not. No, it's not that. Uh, you know, it's about this. You know, this young girl who, uh, you know, I think is suffering from an unidentified mental illness, who joins this elite dance troupe, and the director of that dance troupe decides to make their new show about Madeline,
0: her relationship uh, with her mom, about
4: her relationship with her mom. Yes, and uh, it then goes a little bit off the rails, like you know, in, you know, exp- showing you the the, the the space of this girl's head helena howard is doing one of the most challenging roles of the year and uh she pulls it off excellently she gives the best performance of the year in my book
0: mm-hmm.
4: uh you know you've got the 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 i forgot who is it that plays the mom and the you know dance troupe instructor but the, the, they're both the,
0: the, the mom is miranda july the dance troupe instructor is molly parker And they're excellent. I think they're both on my personal list for Best Supporting
4: Actress. Uh, It's told, you know, in this very, I don't know how to describe it, esoteric editing style that really pulls you into how this girl is thinking and experiencing the world. Hypnotic. As the movie went on, as the movie progressed, I went from hating it to going, okay, I kind of see what they're doing. And it just drew me in until the end. this had this cathartic release where I again was crying in the theater. I had tears streaming down my face, going, "Man, I can't believe I'm gonna say that this movie was the best of the year. <laughs> uh it's something that really ought to be experienced. I believe that it's streaming on Amazon Prime. Anyone listening who hasn't seen it, I really highly recommend." you gotta see this it's one of the best of the decade
0: yeah i never got to talk about madeline's madeline just because it it, i it never came to theaters near me i saw it pretty late on amazon prime and i i mean i it really did work for me as like a story about mental illness and like how the effect it can have on people and other people in their life don't really know how to deal with it you know i enjoyed it on that level though like you know you're making the comment about just oh it might be one of these non-narrative things that grinds your gears and those kind of movies do have that effect on me sometimes and i don't think it was exactly that but more maybe just that like I just don't really have a like ton of experience in that kind of acting class, you know, whether you want to call it. I don't even know how. Yeah, she's in like
4: an avant garde, avant-garde, sort of like artsy, improv acting,
0: acting thing. Where, wh- yeah, whatever you want to do. I just, I think I was just so caught off guard by that stuff that I didn't really know like how to read it, and I was trying to think way too much into what I should be taking from it instead of just like letting the movie take over me. Or yeah, I think um, that
4: that's that's important. I was, I'm not a, I'm not an actor in any way, shape, yeah. or form. And uh, but like watching these people go, and like you know, it, it is also a movie about. Art and like processing pain through art, and uh, even though I have no experience with this form of art, I ended up, you know, really understanding how these sorts of things work and how this process works for the people who do. Uh, I think that goes down to just how this movie is edited and shot, and it does it, it, it. It does it's done in a way that i think translates well whether or not you have experience with this sort of thing or not
0: yeah i definitely recommend people checking it out even if it w- wasn't as much my cup of tea as daniel's i still f- uh, took a lot from the movie as well so uh that's daniel's top 10 and i uh, i and you didn't actually have as many like, crazy selections that like were against the critical grain as i expected so i think we're going to get in a few more of those if someone wants to hop over to our awards podcast now and hear what daniel's favorite movies of the year are that are under 60 percent on the tomato meter but uh, if you want to stick with us here uh stay tuned for the next top 10 Thanks, Daniel. Thanks. All right. Welcome back. I'm now joined by my friend Elijah Howard, who, like Daniel, who you just heard from, was last on our If Beale Street Could Talk podcast, and that might come up in a couple minutes as well. Elijah, thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me again. Yeah. Before I get into your top 10, do you have any quick thoughts just as you were looking around compiling your list, which I know you just posted on Facebook today in a little depth. So you posted on Facebook today a little more in depth. So I know you've probably had a little time to reflect on 2018. Uh, Did you have any big picture thoughts just as you were looking over the list of movies you would seen last year about the year in movies as compared to the last couple of years or just uh, any kind of common thread you saw?
5: yeah man 2018 was like the was the empire strikes back of movie years i i I, at the beginning of the year i was like man this year's gonna be kind of slow um but it really 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 picked up there was an i i was struggling to keep my top 15 uh you know manageable i mean there was a lot of excellent films this year and a lot of very political films which i loved um be it explicitly or or implicitly i mean every film I, i think pretty much every film in my every film in my top 10 this year uh is some kind of, of commentary, um, on the state of the world today, a reaction to a lot of the stuff that happened in 2016 and 2017. Um, and it's good to see that, you know, artist is, you know, catching up and that we're, uh, maybe entering something of a, of a golden age of, uh, you know, really, of, um, you know, message and, uh, and, and political films. Man, so. that,
0: That's pretty high praise there. So, uh, without further ado, uh, what's your number 10 favorite movie of 2018?
5: My number ten film is going to be a, fail, a film called November, by Rainer Sarnet.
0: I don't um, know anything about it, so tell me <laughs> t-
5: tell me what this movie is. So this is a, this is a very not twenty eighteen film, ironically enough. Having just said all of that, um, this is a kind of film that I was incredibly surprised to see even existed in twenty eighteen, um, and that is a, a black and white, Estonian folk horror film, hmm. um, and uh, basically quick. Synopsis: it's, uh, It takes place in the 19th century, and it follows a small, um, almost shtetl like uh, Estonian village, where uh, the devil and werewolves and demon, like a number of strange and evil uh, forces, are basically quietly battling for possession of the village's soul. You know, collective soul overall. Jeez um and it's a very bizarre film very dark uh very grim and i mean you know it's playing on a lot of things that i if you know me you know i'm gonna love there's a lot i love i'm big you know big into witches and you know occult uh uh theory and paganism and stuff like that so this film definitely you know tapped a lot of those buttons um But from a technical perspective, I mean, the cinematography is incredible, like the black and white and the way that you play with shadows. And, uh, you know, the the way that visual effects were incorporated into the movie, um, you know, it's really cool to see something where the film has a distinctly distinctly old feel to it. um, But there was a lot of subtle use of very modern techniques Hmm. Um, and to have that all blended together is a is a rare treat. So
0: interesting. And I'm guessing that it might be one of a few foreign black and white films in your top 10 if I'm sensing a common thread. <laughs> so, in uh, fact,
5: one of yeah, one of three, which is yeah, yeah. unbelievable, I feel like. But yeah.
0: So uh, what's your number nine? My number nine is if Beale Street could talk. It's also my um, number nine, uh, and yeah. we already talked about that like four episodes ago. So I don't want to like dwell too much on that. But uh, did you have any quick thoughts that, about Beale Street that you've had since we recorded that podcast, or anything else you want to say, or just we can agree it's great?
5: <laughs> I think we can just agree it's great. I mean, it's a beautiful film in, in all terms of the word, you know, and all in all understandings
0: of the word. It's beautiful, and um, I just loved it. So yeah, what's your number eight? My number eight is First Reformed. Okay, um, I talked about this with my friend Hannah a couple segments back. So, uh, but I had I haven't really talked to you about this movie. What did you really like about it?
5: Um, I really, honestly, like that it's a that it's a religious film. I mean, uh, I'm not I, I'm I'm Jewish. I know we've talked about that in a couple of instances. I think in the, in the mm-hmm. podcast Probably. history. Yeah. Um, but I like when a film gets maybe religious isn't the right word. Maybe ecumenical. Um, it deals with the theory of religion. And I loved how earnest um, and, and you know, I don't want to say shocking, but how, um, you know, very blunt this movie was about religion. It, you know, we, we get inundated a lot with movies like God's Not Dead and God's Not Dead 6, and, yeah. you know, all that stuff. Um, so to have this little film in between all of those that is such a, a raw and um, really honest take on religion – uh, it was was fascinating to me, and you know the way that it talks about faith, and it, it really only could have come from Paul Schrader, who, uh, you know, for those of the listeners who don't know, <laughs> had an extremely re- like I think he was Calvinist. Hmm. Um, his household is Calvinist, so uh, you know I think this movie is him digging way back into his childhood to examine some of that, just, you know that that uh, inherited guilt and and all of that stuff. So uh, to see it all shoveled out like that is really awesome.
0: Yeah, and just as I talked about with Hannah a little bit ago, just framed in the context of, I mean, uh, what we're doing on our planet, is this a really unique way to actually tell a story about religion and at the same time? uh, Just really interesting that Schrader's mind went there.
5: yeah yeah and i um, yeah this um it's and again this that that ecumenical idea of you know of christian stewardship of religious stewardship and what does that mean and are we just stewards for ourselves and our little plot of land or do we have a greater responsibility a a, a heavenly responsibility to um you know provide stewardship for the world yeah uh, yeah it's really fascinating yeah for sure what's your number 7 my number seven is Vox Lux by Brady Corbett.
0: Yeah, I talked about that with our friend uh, Ben uh, a, co- a couple of months back. So what did you really dig about that one? I know Ben told me you are a fan of uh, Corbett's first film too.
5: Yeah, Childhood of a Leader. I, I cannot count how many times I've told him and several other people to watch that movie. But um, Vox Lux and, and, and Childhood of a Leader, all of Brady Corbett's work um, – you know, very much hails from, uh, Michael Haneke, who's one of my favorite, uh, living directors. Um, and it's an extremely detached Euro art house kind of film, you know, um, it's very cold and disconnected, but my God, it was probably the most American film of the year in terms of just how, how, like how red (laughs) like American culture was in it. Like, uh, though it's a it's essentially it's a film about the rise and maybe fall of a of a pop star mm-hmm. um, who has somewhat tragic beginnings um, but as we learn throughout the film she's kind of a horrible person <laughs> um and i just there is there like this is it's such an incredible condensation or uh you know uh distillation uh, distillation rather thank you of um of just all these notions about American pop culture and iconography and how obsessed we are with a uh, with narrative. We want everything to have a story and to have a happy ending. And this film really dug down into that concept and into this, uh, you know, sort of dumb American idea that we need to have... Um, you know, we need to have these heroes who we can prop up yeah. um, and make perfect. Yeah, and- I I,
0: liked, I like what you said there because that was my one big point when I did the podcast with Ben is that, like, we feel the need to, like, attach these narratives to our – uh, to, to our celebrities and to our most of, uh, well-known public figures. And, uh, they might not always be the people we need to go to, to comment in times like those when, whether it be like a massive terrorism attack or a school shooting or something like that. Uh, just because they have gone through some kind of experience like that doesn't make them the best mouthpiece for something like that and can often maybe result in things not going so well for them in their personal lives.
5: Exactly. Exactly. And, um, yeah, I mean I just love I, I love Natalie Portman and I know a lot Natalie Portman got a lot of a lot of flack for the role, but I I felt that there was a lot of intentionality behind it. I mean, the way that she taught everybody was like, that's not a real New York accent. I'm like, she was she she was raised in Psiosa. Like she knows what a New York accent sounds like. She's making fun of pop stars and of people in positions of power who feel like they need to overemphasize overemphasize their you know their new yorkness <laughs> in order to prove a point mm-hmm. um and i think that's a very not so subtle jab at donald trump which i just again talking about you know political films this year i loved that that uh you know i thought that was a pretty you know succinct way to make fun of him
0: right so right yeah all right what's your number six
5: uh, my number six is Roma by Alfonso Cuarón.
0: Yeah, we already talked about that. Looks like we The uh, uh, one thing that I think it's one thing I think is worth mentioning. Uh, I don't want to dwell too much on it because people can go listen to our podcast about it. But uh, one of the big surprises on Oscar morning was Marina de Tavera getting an Oscar nomination, and I think we talked a little bit about her on the podcast. But that was one that a lot of Oscar pundits just straight up overlooked. So, um, and I mean, we're gonna. She, I think she got talked about a little bit on, the, on when Fred and I talked about Best Supporting Actress. But uh, I don't know if you had any thoughts on her getting nominated because I think most of the other nominations you could have seen coming or just what you think about the damage this movie might do at the awards because i mean it might be the first ever foreign language film to get best picture
5: right i mean i, I that would be incredible i mean i think it's a, it's a very deserving film um it, you know in terms of my top 10 it was not my number 1 foreign language film um but nevertheless i recognized um the, and I, this is something we talked about that there is a sort of universality to it um, and especially its philosophy and uh, I think that's what a lot of people really um, connected with
0: and I think a lot of people um, and th- th- maybe that's partly why that performance resonated but a lot of people probably can connect with a mother that's going through a tough time like that and that exactly. even, even if it's in another language like you understand the struggle she's going through
5: exactly right and so I think um, that universality could very well push it over the edge um, and that'd be really cool
0: yeah what's your number five
5: my number five film is Cold War by Pavel Pavlikovsky.
0: Man, so both—it seems I think both you and uh, Daniel saw this in like the last week and jumped into both your top tens, I guess.
5: It did, yeah. Um, It—I've been. This was the lot. I mean, th- that was the film that I was basically like waiting for because lo- I before
0: you locked your top ten.
5: Right, exactly. Because I knew uh, it was. I didn't want to be blindsided by anything, and I knew it was going to be. Uh, I. I mean, I when I saw Ida in 2014 or whenever that film came out I mean that was that was a revelatory experience for me as a you know as a young film viewer young filmmaker um, so I was very 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 much waiting for this movie um, and uh, it did not disappoint I mean it's a I, there are some films that you know have a deep personal resonation and all these things and, and I do think that there was a lot of stuff to resonate with uh, you know, personally within Cold War. Mm-hmm. But there's also films to me that are just masterclasses. They're just clinics on how to, how to make movies. And, and Cold War was one, man. I mean, the way that Paolo Pawlikowski uses narrative ellipses, the way that he uses emotions to tell stories rather than words, um, it's, uh, it's just, you, you know, th- these are the kind of movies you have to watch if you want to be a great filmmaker um and uh that that's you know the most i can say about it it was the best film yeah. about it was the best film about a pop star uh in 2018
3: i'm not gonna uh,
0: oh. <laughs> I'm not, uh no i mean uh, I, I i i had a star is born uh high pretty high in my top 10 but i uh, I, I, can't, I, I can't begrudge anyone for thinking about that because I, I definitely enjoyed cold war two and I, i'm going to hold off on asking you too much about how this movie looks because we're about to talk about cinematography in our, in our separate awards podcast and that's one of the nominees, so I'm gonna not ask you anything else about that. But I, but I but I, I am I was curious to hear your thoughts about it and just how it resonated so much. So uh, pretty pretty funny that it just really jumped right up there for you as well as Daniel. Uh, what's your number four?
5: My number four is Shoplifters, directed by Hirokazu Koreda.
0: Yeah, so that's one I didn't actually. No one's no one's named quite yet. I th- I don't think so. I'm uh, curious to hear what you have to say about it because I haven't really gotten to talk to anyone about it either.
5: Um, it's just, I mean, I think I wrote somewhere that, uh, you know, Correta makes a film every couple of years and every time he makes a movie, it goes right into my top 10 and (laughs) maybe even into my top five. And I've just come to uh, accept that. That's just the way it's going to (laughs) be. The way it's going to be is every film I see of his is going to be a great film and I'm going to have to put it somewhere in my top 10. Um, And, uh, this, this film was maybe, one of the best examples of that in years, I mean, he, he, he had a film uh, 10 years ago now called Still Walking, huh. which to me was, um, you know, it's probably the, well, maybe not the closest. Really, all of his films are all very similar. I'm not going to lie. Um, they're all about families. They're all about um, generational struggles. But this was maybe the first film that has ever done that felt distinctly political, even more so than Nobody Knows, which was uh, his 2004 film that that actually dealt with similar topics. What what, what
0: what do you mean by that? Is it do you really do, to understand what you mean by that? Do I need to know a lot about like just the economics of Tokyo or when you say political, how do you mean?
5: Yeah, I mean you, you, it might help to know a little bit about about Japan's economic history, but I mean I think the, you you know you, you know the general idea of the of you know the Heisei period and the idea that it you know after World War II. American industry flooded into the country and, you know, b- turned their economy into this booming thing. And then there was stagnation in the 80s and, you know, tech overflow. And now they're sort of in this transitional period of trying to rediscover, you know, what, you know, who Japan is, you know, what this new generation can do um, to shape a, an economic and social future for the country. Yeah. Um, and, and in Nobody Knows, which is his film from 2004, the film is about uh, a, a young boy who, or um, uh, has to take care of the rest of his siblings after um, their mother just disappears. She just like leaves, um, and so this young kid has to take care of all of his siblings. And and Shoplifters is kind of a similar idea where this young girl gets left out on the street, basically, and this family, this ragtag family of of criminals. Um, takes her in and has to raise her. Um
0: yeah, and what, so. Well, what I'll say, what I just want to jump in for one second, because the one way it really did work for me was a movie about was in being a movie about family, because I I was so impressed by the fact that like at some point later in the movie I got a little I got a little confused and I was like. Wait. So, like, this this grandma is visiting the son of her ex husband, but that wasn't actually her kid, and is like, but might have actually taken in like his daughter. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like, I'm as things start to unravel in the second half, and you're realizing this isn't the family you think it is, but at the same time. You respect the fact that like a, familiar, a familial unit has been formed here, and even if you're not totally sure how everyone ended up there, you got to kind of let go of that in the moment. Because at the same time, that, I think part of the point is it doesn't really matter, and family can be formed by more than just blood. And right. I, I, yeah. I really like that that came through to me in a moment in which I, as I want to do sometimes, was getting a little worried that maybe I was missing something. And I'm like, wait, it doesn't even matter because he, what, what he's done here is pretty special in just uh, introducing this group to you.
5: Right, exactly, and I mean it's um, you know I think this movie specifically was a takedown of that old adage like you know you can't choose your family. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this movie was uh, Hirokazu Koreeda saying very specifically yes you can choose your family, mm. um, and you know the the greater commentary about uh, you know how capitalism has kind of you know mis uh, you know sort of led. Uh, Japan into identity crisis that aside um, you know that that commentary about family is worth the price of admission alone so true all right what's your number three my number three film is you were never really here directed by Lynn Ramsey
0: yeah so uh I I feel really bad. I should have watched uh, You Were Never Really Here Again by now. I promise I'm going to, but as I keep telling everyone, I, I the, when I did see it in theaters, I had a pounding headache because I was dog-sitting for a friend, and I got like two hours <laughs> of sleep the night before, and it was basically the one chance I was going to have to see it, and I just had to go at this time even though I had a headache, and… I really just don't think I absorbed the movie in the proper way, and yeah, I,
5: that's not the—that's a terrible film to see you, with a headache. To
0: already have a headache going in, I know that much that it's not the best way. So I really cannot break this movie down as well as I would like. But I will ask you what worked about it so much for you, or what about it worked so much for you? I
5: felt that in a year with Black Panther and Avengers and Aquaman and every man with the man with the cape and the crusade and whatever. Honestly, this was the best superhero film. This was a movie about...
0: A it's a second g- trade segment where we've gotten a hot take. Uh, but Except Daniel Lima's favorite superhero movie of the year, or the best superhero movie of the year, according to him, was Aquaman. So you guys went in different directions on that.
5: <laughs> we did. And I'm being I'm being maybe a slight bit facetious slash pretentious, whatever. But um, to me, this movie was such a great film about like single-minded masculinity and this guy who's like essentially an uberman she just goes around like beating the shit of people um it's really he did there's really he's nothing he's doing nothing different than like batman um but it's such a gruff and disgusting movie (laughs) um and he's such a like it's such a pitiful you know story and um um I thought it was a, you know, this really excellent philosophical piece about, you know, man versus nature and, uh, you know, finding your place within the natural order and how this guy is like not afraid of death and how, uh, you know, that's kind of a horrifying thing to not be afraid of death and to not have, uh, you know, a connection to the natural order. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, Yeah, I mean, Joaquin Phoenix is, uh, he's just a stunning, you know, really great actor. He's incredibly expressive. And to see him pull off a physical role like this at this stage in his life, you know, having kind of been in in a number of roles where he's really only had to sit still for, for a
0: while now. Well, you'll get to um, see him play a different, uh, a, role, a different kind of role in a superhero universe later this year, I guess, as right, playing exactly. the, the Joker. So we'll see we just how far his range goes. Uh, what is your number two? My number two film is Madeline's Madeline um,
5: uh, by uh, Josephine Decker.
0: That was Daniel's number one, so we just talked about that. But uh, what did you dig so much about Madeline's Madeline, which is a very unique movie? Exactly. I,
5: I will say this. Uh, it is not my number one for the year because my number one is a film that, you know, pandered to me so specifically. <laughs> but I will say that Madeline's Madeline, if there is a film to be remembered from this decade for how it advanced the medium, it's Madeline's Madeline. I mean – What do you mean by that? There's uh, there's, there's a general feeling that experimental film is, is dead, that, you know, um, there's nothing new under the sun and that um, – you know, the the ambitions of filmmaking need to turn inward and to look at older traditions and to kind of try and refocus some of those things. So this film, which so blithely and spiritedly throws that all to the wind and just says, screw it, we're going to, like, this is a movie where we're going to do all kinds of weird stuff with cinematography and editing, where we're going to have the character's internal monologue fade in and out of the sound, out of the soundscape and and have, you know, her pretend to be a cat. And just like, it was just such a wild and bizarre movie. And, um, And with all of that in mind, It was still a a very palpable and emotional movie, Um, you know, about uh, about mothers and and about mental illness and about, um, you know, the pressure of uh, being creative. Mm -hmm. Um, And so maybe it spoke to me as a, you know, as a filmmaker in that capacity. But I I felt like those things would be uh, universal, that you could. You know watch that movie and and and, you know just read all of those things right off the page from you know helena howard's face and from uh you know molly parker and miranda july you know that
0: yeah, I, It's I, one of the best ensembles of the year. Yeah, I certainly appreciated all the performances. I think maybe it's just me. I'm not ambitious filmmaker in my own right. So maybe some of the, the weird out there stuff that really jazzed you about like what you can get away with in a movie was maybe where it lost me a little bit. Because as I told Daniel, I just didn't really know what to take from an acting class like that, and I probably – I like, spent way too much time over analyzing what was going on in those scenes because of that when I should have just kind of been absorbed by it more than I actually was. But I still like really respected the movie and uh, appreciated what it did and the and, and the store overall story it was telling. Even if some of the trappings might have just caught me off guard. Uh, I I think I, I think I know what your number one is. So uh, why don't you uh, go ahead and announce it for the listeners though.
5: My number one is The Favorite, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos.
0: Yeah, we talked about that here, uh, but I mean, I I, I don't want to just like run you off on what's your number one. I mean, people <laughs> can go listen to our conversation about it in the podcast we did along with Roma, but uh, did you have any other uh, thoughts you wanted to share about it, or wh- wh- is there one – you said it pandered to you, and I was going to ask, like, what's the main reason it beat out all these other movies when you sit, sit back and look at it finishing the year number one for you? So when you say it pandered to me, well, what is what are the main things that really uh, ultimately, like, got at that top spot on your list
5: i am you know i'm just a i'm just a history nut and i love you know british monarchy history and uh this this snagged you know the just at the right time period because i'm not very big on like you know modern british monarchy stuff um so this is like that jumping off point where it's right before I lose interest, and it hit just right that perfect. It's kind of sweet funny spot. since Olivia
0: Coleman's about to be in the next season of The Crown, which is maybe the modern stuff you're getting at—that's like not as much your thing. Exactly, uh, and I probably
5: yeah. won't care all that much for it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, the, the, just that the historical element to it—it's just—it's you know, it, just like November, the film that we started this discussion with—it's mm-hmm. the kind of film that doesn't get made. You know, there's there's very few costume dramas um made nowadays per year um that this in this form of costume drama we get a lot of stuff about the 19 you know early 1900s whatever but um you know medieval stuff and you know uh, late <laughs> Windsorian period you know like uh, you know british monarchy stuff from the from that far back we don't really get a whole lot of that not only do we not get a lot of that we don't get a lot of it as comedies anymore mm-hmm. um if we get stuff like that it's usually a pretty dry you know, Mary, Queen of Scots, whatever uh, uh, film that's just so bland and, you know, like it's like reading a Wikipedia page. (laughs) Very, very few movies that do that route actually end up going into the comedy way, uh, you know, into the comedy stream and and, uh, do it well. And so this movie had that going for it. And it it also tiptoed the line of current relevance. I mean, just like Vox Lux, uh, I felt that this was a film about sycophancy and about cronyism and about, you know, our obsession, our modern obsession with power and prestige and, <laughs> uh, you know, how in this day and age with our current political uh, climate, how we need to be aware of the ways that we approach power and, um, you know, and the way that we desire power and. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things that we might find ourselves willing to do to get that power.
0: Yeah. Also, on top of all that, like I agree, uh, hilariously funny. I, uh, I saw it again after we did our podcast, and it it certainly held up. But uh, it's the one thing I think it's also impressive is it, uh, in the midst of all of that, it does have like a, a fairly sad story about Queen Anne at its core, and uh, and it doesn't, in it, it 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 pays it, it pays service to that, but at the same time, like it doesn't feel out of place, and at the same time. Oh, even knowing everything you learn about her story, you were still able to really have a, a fun time while at the same time having some sympathy for her, and it's it, pretty impressive it has room for all of that, and that's just the, kind of the one thing I wanted to add on to your points. Yeah, Um, absolutely. All right. Well, Elijah, uh, thank you for running through your top ten. Had a couple new things that hadn't even come up on the podcast yet, but uh, also a couple things that have uh, now shown up repeatedly. So it's kind of interesting to see where all my friends are falling. So uh, everyone stay tuned for the next top (laughs) ten. All right, now we're back with uh, my friend Joe Morgan, who's been on a lot of these podcasts. I call him the animation correspondent, but he's uh, also like joined us for podcasts such as *Oceans 8 and *Bad Times at the El Royale*. So, Joe, thanks for being here. Are you ready to talk about your favorite movies of 2018? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, so do you, before we jump in, I've been giving everyone like a chance to give like a quick thought or a quick synopsis of like if you have any big picture thoughts on like the year of 2018, as opposed to any other year at all, or did you see any common threads as you were kind of looking through the list of movies you saw and like trying to decide what your favorite was?
2: Um, I mean, I don't know. I just looking at the year as a whole, I didn't, um, there wasn't much that really seemed very groundbreaking to me. There wasn't like a whole lot of stuff that really wowed me. And like, mm-hmm. as in years past, you know, I thought it was overall kind of a down year for movies mm-hmm. that said, I am extremely excited about uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, and-
0: I mean, curious because I, I didn't actually—that that was the one, the one anime movie I've had a different guest other than you on for. So, I'm curious to see where that ends up on your list. And it's funny—we did—we actually just talked about uh, Lego Movie Two on a podcast that people will have heard by now. Uh, but at the same time, it's another thing that Phil Lord and Chris Miller were involved in. So. Um, Mm -hmm. kind of interesting that that maybe is maybe one of the more groundbreaking things that we had seen this year uh just in certain ways that that was unique from other animated movies but uh without further ado what was your uh 10th favorite movie of 2018
2: uh my 10th favorite movie of 2018 was first man all
0: right yeah i don't i don't know if that's popped up on anyone else's list yet i can't remember so what what did you really like about it
2: um i just really liked the sort of look at the dark side and the danger of that man of the man on the moon mission. I think it did a really good job of kind of establishing the stakes and really how, uh, dangerous and how costly, you know, as someone who didn't grow up during that era and as someone who doesn't know a whole lot about the moon landing, other than, you know, the famous first words and, uh, you know, the photos obviously in your textbooks. Um, I just thought it was like incredibly in depth. Look at the stakes of, you know, what made that so perilous and so risky and so involved for the United States. And yeah, you know, yeah, I I really, I really enjoyed watching it. I feel like it was a movie where I was glad I had seen it. I guess if I had one issue with it is I kind of felt like Ryan Gosling was a little too like emotionless for it. <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, it's hard to know like if that's I mean, they're obviously kinda trying to make a point that like he wasn't that charismatic and he had gone through a lot and probably uh-huh. internalized it as opposed to like Buzz Aldrin who was very media friendly. Uh yeah. I, I forgot. I actually already did talk about this a little bit with Fred. It was made his like top five, I think. But um I mean I, I, I did enjoy like I almost enjoyed the stuff on on the ground more than in space. I, I specifically like the point that you made about danger because I don't think I talked about that uh, when I mentioned it earlier on this podcast. But like, I, I as someone who also didn't grow up then, I, I mean, I knew like about like you know like something like the Challenger going bad, but I didn't realize how many like just accidents there were in training for something like this mission, and how Neil Armstrong kept signing up to do it anyway, and no one would have blamed him for not doing it, given how many friends he lost and his daughter lost. They would have been like. Hey, it's cool if you sit this one out or something like that, you know? I mean, and just the fact that he was that single-minded and wanted to, like, achieve something, you can certainly, certain people can certainly relate to something like that and just having a goal in life and being pretty single-minded with respect to it. And uh, it wasn't in my top 10, but, like, I I did like the movie, and I thought that was one of the things that did really well. So, um, yeah, what what was your number nine movie? Uh, Number nine movie is Ocean's 8. Okay, so yeah, I, I I haven't gone back and listened to the podcast we did about it, so we don't we don't have to dwell too much on it right now. But I was pretty critical about Ocean's Eight just with respect to like not loving the heist as much. And I mean, Ocean's Eleven is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I know you're obviously really high on it, and that's why you reached out to me about it. But I couldn't remember. I guess you probably did come out a little more positive on, on it than I did. So looking back on it, what were you most impressed with about the movie? Uh, I
2: think it had a very it had a very tall task of continuing a franchise that while the franchise maybe wasn't like a huge smash you know those movies have a very specific taste to them and a very uh sort of brand of cool and it would have been very easy to kind of uh cash in on that and like throw in a clooney cameo in there or just make an oceans 14 you know what i mean so
0: well, they, they might still um, do that but uh or, yeah
2: which i would be
0: here for because <laughs> or they might just do oceans 9 and 10 which is why might might have started at eight but uh yeah i mean yeah. i agree they they had a couple of smaller cameos you know when they uh brought in ruben and brought in uh yen but like i mean uh they certainly could have like even had more shameless stuff in that regard and they didn't so it gets credit for that for sure and i mean sure. i go ahead i know i was just gonna say some people did criticize it they thought maybe like sandra bullock was like I thought they said like, oh, maybe Sandra Bull was like just doing too much of a um, George Clooney impersonation. I don't even know what that means. Like, it did feel like its own her own character to me, and her relationship yeah. with Kate Blanchett's character did feel distinct. I mean, it's obviously like they're the they're the Danny and Rusty, but like they still felt like uh, their own. They had their own vibe to me, and I, I my favorite parts of the movie are probably just them hanging out, even more so than like the heist or something like that. You know.
2: Yeah, what is it Michael Scott says in The Office? This isn't Ocean's Eleven where just George Clooney gets together and hangs out with his friends. But I mean like <laughs> that's
0: – I mean, No, yeah. it's the greatest hangout movie of all time in my opinion. That exactly. is what it is and like that – those are probably the best parts of this movie because I, I, I personally found a lot of the heist problematic. But like I mean yeah. – I it, 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 it mean and no, no shame in not being as bothered by that to – have it as high on your list as you did but like i mean i i I mean i even went to it a second time and i think i watched it again on a train and up on a plane at some point so i mean as critical as i could be of it like i can't blame anyone for having it high on their list because it's still very watchable with a a lot of fun performances um Mm -hmm. what's your number eight uh number eight is the incredibles 2 all right, so, so you're just knocking both of our – the second podcast of The Rewind out yes. right there that we already did. Um, Again, not going to dwell on it too much, but uh, did you have any uh, big-picture thoughts about that for how it just kind of stacked up with uh, other animated movies of recent years and whether Brad Bird like, didn't mess things up?
2: Um, I really liked that Elastigirl got to be in the driver's seat for this one. I thought that was really important mm-hmm. um, to have that uh, angle come up and kind of see her do some cool things. Um. I really, the I was kind of thinking like, um, as I was kind of going through this list and making things, I was like, what are the things I really enjoyed at the movie this year though? And I think I just enjoyed just how, um, insane Jack Jack's whole deal was. Cause one of the big, uh, oh, yeah. one of the big, uh, things about the first Incredibles is that, uh, Jack Jack is like not there for the entire movie. And then you get it for like two minutes at the end where he's just mm-hmm. like, it's his super So uh, just in terms of most enjoyable theater experiences of the year just jack jack being an all-powerful uh elusive toddler was just hysterical to me and um friendship with edna and mode and everything i just loved it so, yeah no that
0: awesome. was a lot of fun and i, I totally agree in the last year thing that's like probably the best thing how she got to like have a more central arc because like just to have other things like that they'll kind of grab onto from the movie is really important because like i said i at the time in our podcast then like just trying to find a villain as good as syndrome was like such a tall task and you can't like knock him too much for not being able to top that. So being able to have other really good things about this movie um, to really appreciate was what made it worthwhile for me too. And I I didn't have it as high as you, but like, I mean, I still, I I, I mean, I still really liked it also. So um, solid choice. Uh, What's your number seven?
2: Uh, Number seven is uh, Mary Poppins Returns.
0: All right. So I I was kind of middle of the road on Mary Poppins. I like didn't dislike it, but like I I I had just gone back and watched the original right before I saw it cuz like I hadn't seen it since I was like a little kid. So I think I was probably comparing it to it in too many ways, uh which probably a little unfair again, like you know, when you watch like an original of something that's really awesome right before seeing a sequel, like it might be necessary in some ways to know what's going on, but at the same time like you might like be holding something to like a pretty high standard but like if you're going to revamp something like Mary Poppins like you should probably make sure you have a pretty good idea for it so what did you like the most about it
2: so i think my favorite thing about it is that it both improved on the original while not completely abandoning the original Cause, oh um, so you think it's
0: better than the original
2: no well i don't think it's I, I okay so i'll say i'll say this with a caveat i love the original mary poppins like i love the songs it's very uh, on brand just, for you yeah it's, it's <laughs> on brand. I love the original Mary Poppins. Um, one of my criticisms of the original Mary Poppins is that it's not very narratively focused. Um, it's a movie that will just like take breaks from the plot for like minutes at a time. You're not, you're it,
0: not huge on like long songs about banking practices. <laughs> no,
2: well, uh, I love the song. Uh, I don't need, We don't need to stop the movie for twenty minutes to talk. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> Um, where I liked this one uh, a bit better was, uh, Mary Poppins Returns has a very focused story with very, uh, real stakes. You know, they're going to lose the house, you know, Mm -hmm. and everything is in service of trying to save the house. And, um, I thought it was a lot more narratively focused in that way, but at the same time, I don't feel like Mary Poppins Returns, like, like abandoned the whole song and dance number thing. Like I could easily see Disney doing something like, Oh, people don't want to watch a 10 minute Dance number about lamplighters in London, but Disney's like, no, it, you know, it, we're gonna do it because that's what Mary Poppins is. And so they triple the light. Fantastic was an incredibly long sequence, but it was super delightful and enjoyable. And I'm really glad they gave audiences credit for that. I'm just glad we didn't have like four songs that lasted, you know, 20 minutes. You know?
0: Yeah, and, <laughs> so, and you thought Emily Blunt did things pretty well. Yeah, and Emily Blunt was
2: great. Lived I up I to, lived
0: up to what she needed to, even though asking someone to step into Julie Andrews' shoes is a pretty big a- to ask.
2: Yeah, I love, I love Emily Blunt, and um, she did a fantastic job in this, and this is not the last time she will be on my list.
0: So. Ah, interesting. A little teaser there. Okay. Uh, well, again, like I mean I probably do disagree with you on the Triple Light Fantastic. Like I cared about as much about lamp lighting as I did about banking, so that was like one of my <laughs> big knocks to the movies. Like these movies, especially the first. The first one is so damn long, um, and that yeah. goes along with what you're saying about it like narratively having some issues. Um, not that like when you're watching that thing when you're like a little kid, of course you might still love it, but like I mean – I, this one wasn't as long as that, but I found like the lamp lighting stuff like just as unnecessary. Like, there's I just saw like a, a more trim version of this movie in my head. Didn't think the Meryl Streep thing was all that necessary either. But like, you can't say no when Meryl Streep's like I'll, sure I'll be in your movie, you know? Yeah, um, the Meryl
2: Streep scene is probably my least favorite scene in the movie. All due respect to her; she's great. But yeah, just, yeah, yeah. I could have done without that. They probably could have cut that.
0: Anyway. Yeah. What's your number six?
2: Uh, number six on my list is eighth grade.
0: Ah, okay, yeah, that, that one's already popped up a few times too. So, uh, what'd you really dig about that?
2: Um, it was probably, it was one of my most excruciating, uh, movie experiences of the year, just in terms of like, as, as I watched it, I, as, as someone who is naturally introverted myself, um, <laughs> uh, just watching it like as a male, like as a male, you know, like it was bad enough just being like a crippled, crippled introvert, you know? But, like, just her having to deal with being a girl, an eighth-grade girl, on top of being, like, introverted like that. Like, there was just, like – it was just a movie that was really raw and it, like, really um, – was it was painful for me to watch because I could relate to it so easily, you know? Yeah, and it's just,
0: funny. I, I, with my friend Hannah on the awards podcast, I did Best Scene, and I – we talked about a bunch. And at the end, like, I had to throw in the party scene, uh, you know, <laughs> even though it's a scene I would almost never want to watch again. You used the word excruciating. Yeah, but, like – at the same time, like that's exactly what that scene wanted to be, and it did a great job of being that and making conveying that feeling of what it is like to be in a kid in that situation where you, even if you're not introverted, like I'm not, I'm a pretty outgoing person, but like I'm, st- it's still weird just whenever you're at a place where, you everyone else knows each other better than you know any of them, and uh, mm-hmm. the the like the the feelings that come with being thrown into something like that are very uncomfortable, and the movie does a great job of making you feel uncomfortable in that moment, and several others so it's certainly pretty amazing that bo burnham a 27 year old male comedian was able to like get to the head of teenage girls you know
2: yeah for sure it was i will say though, special shout out to a movie that you love as well the edge of 17 which um is just the best like teen movie i've seen you know um I just wanted to shout that out here because I feel like 8th grade got a lot more love than The Edge of Seventeen where The Edge of Seventeen was probably a better movie. But anyway.
0: Yeah, um, I mean it probably was, but like it got love for me on my personal uh, top ten that year. So, <laughs> um, And you know, uh, Kelly and Kelly Fremont Craig like, recently I think got the go-ahead for her next feature. So we, we all might have that to look forward to at some point at the end of this year. We'll see. So uh, what's your number five?
2: Uh, number five is Black Panther.
0: All right, I've I've said oh, yeah. a lot of words about that, so I'm not going to say much. But uh, what what really did you connect with the most in that movie?
2: Um, I just really loved the Michael B. Jordan uh, performance. I just think he's just so electric when he's on the screen and best best
0: know, best vi- villain and maybe since the Joker, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. Except mm-hmm. you know, um, with the you know with the Joker, it's just sort of this anarchist. Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? And like you, you know.
0: You certainly know do. who Killmonger is by the end of this movie.
2: Exactly. Like, Killmonger, like, there's just such a – there's just such a personal, like – I mean, gosh, like, you you want to root for him because it's just so – I mean, his story is just so tragic and the performance is so great. And I'm really disappointed – like, Black Panther got a ton of Oscars love, so I'm not going to sit here yeah, and that. Yeah,
0: uh, but we were all hoping, like, that would be a surprise nomination on Oscar Morning in Best told, supporting actor.
2: I was really hoping Michael B. would get uh, – Get nominated, but he didn't, but that's okay. Like, you know, I just thought it was great, and he was a big, big reason for that. And, you know, we've seen the MCU origin story so many times, you know, and, like, if, you know, we, Iron Man was 2008, so it's been like 11 years, and we've seen a bunch of these movies. And, like, just to be excited about one again. You know about a new character as as I was about uh, Black Panther, even though we had seen him in Civil War previously. But, but it's also nice to...
0: that we didn't have to have a traditional origin story with him. I mean, it was the first he's... movie, but it's like he's already he's already who he is. Like he he learns some stuff about how he should be and how he should interact with the world throughout that movie, and that's some of the best uh-huh. stuff in the movie. But at the same time, it's like he is already like a fully formed person, and that and we know like we know what t- makes him tick, and so you don't really have to like do all that legwork that other superhero movies might have to at the beginning.
2: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I just thought it was great. I loved it. Um so happy it's on Netflix cuz I got to see Yeah. It.
0: No, I, I need to watch it again before it gets cycled off and when Disney launches their own streaming service and pulls all their shit from other people's services. Uh What's your uh, number 5? Or 4, sorry.
2: Number 4. Uh a quiet place.
0: All right. Yeah, you, right. you hinted at that earlier and that's one I really like. I don't remember where I have it on my list, but like I mean, that's a it's a pretty it's a quite an accomplishment as a movie. What did you what were you what what impressed you the most about that?
2: So I will say, like, I am not a horror movie person. I don't watch horror movies because they, you know, they're scared the hell out of me. I just yep. I can't do it. It's like It's not enjoyable for me to do it. But, you know, I've made, I've made exceptions in the past. Like, I saw Get Out, and I see things occasionally when they – and I heard a bunch of stuff about A Quiet Place. So I went to go see it. And just uh, just the, the way it just uses uh, tension, you know, like just the tension of it the entire time is just so – like oh my god I don't know I just um you know this is a very uh, this is a very armchair quarterback take on the movie but just um you know when I talked about eighth grade being excruciating uh this one was just like you know it was a movie that I was enjoying but I was like I couldn't wait for it to be over
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: that makes sense like I was just like oh my god how much time is left in this thing <laughs> like uh so um uh, I really liked it um I really liked having it in the frame of a family too. And you know, they, they, you know, if you haven't seen it already, come on. Like when they lose a child, like at the very, why, would,
0: why the hell did they have batteries in that toy in the first place anyway, though?
2: I know. <laughs>
0: <on.
2: laughs> um, it just, I, when I go to the theater, I just really want to have an emotional reaction. And, um, for a lot of stuff this year, I did not But for that. Um, yeah, that was,
0: uh, yeah. I mean, in a, uh, very visceral experience. Yeah, some people thought like, maybe he had an outside shot at like getting like a Best Original Screenplay nomination, which I mean, that would have been pretty a pretty baller nomination, and it would have been really cool to actually see what that script looks like because there's like there is so little dialogue, but to, yeah, like be able to even have the vision John Krasinski did working off of a script. I mean, he co wrote the script, but like just to, like like take something like that that has so few words in it and be able to like have such a uh, such a rich film, make such a rich film after just starting from that is uh pretty interesting and i'm I'm with you i mean i keep saying it on this podcast over and over again it's like i'm learning to appreciate different kinds of horror movies that just aren't traditional slasher movies and i i, I like that we've had just such a, a run of this kind of thing the last few years like and some stuff that was like similar in nature like don't breathe or it comes at night things like that like i keep making those kind of movies and i mean like I'm, I'm and i'm down for it for sure uh what's your number three
2: my number three is black klansman
0: all right. That's popped up quite pretty high on a lot of other people's lists, too. So, uh, I mean, Spike Lee is finally getting his due, which is, I think, the most important thing we can take from all this is that he very may very well be taken home an Oscar for adaptive screenplay. So, I'm really looking forward to that. What about Black Klansman really worked for you that made it this high on your list?
2: It's incredibly relevant, but it also shows you something completely new. I feel like with a lot of movies about racism, at least in my viewing experience and what I know um, about, you know mainstream Hollywood stuff coming out. We don't really deal with the clan a whole bunch, you know. And it's
0: that's a good just, point. I mean, I haven't even really thought of it in those terms. But like, when was the last time like the clan featured prominently in a movie?
2: Yeah, like I mean, uh, I mean, I think of like Oh Brother Where Art Thou, but that's obviously totally yeah.
0: There's like a there's like a joke, I guess, and there's like that j- funny scene with Jonah Hill and Django Unchained. Yeah, but like I can't think of a lot of others.
2: Yeah, this I mean, it's incredibly relevant, and it it touches on like an incredible like true story, you know, I mean, these are all based on a true story. How much of it, mm-hmm. you know, I mean like put that caveat thrown in there, but like, you know, it takes like a completely unique window into a situation that I feel like mainstream were afraid to talk about that, you know, as recently as the seventies and eighties, the KKK was, you know, a huge, huge, um, terrorism problem here at home. And mm-hmm. like, I mean, that stuff probably certainly still goes on now to a certain degree. Um, thankfully I haven't been exposed to it that much, but yeah. You know, I, it's just—it's an incredibly relevant movie, especially in the wake of Charlottesville, which you know is obviously included um, in the epilogue there. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, that was just—that was just a really powerful movie for me, and um, I love John David Washington; he's so good in it.
0: Yeah, I was hoping he'd get an Oscar nomination too. Uh, Adam Driver was—Adam Driver's was deserved too, though. I mean, that, I connected to that performance as like a as like a Jewish person that maybe doesn't have to think about being Jewish all that often, but then you see certain things going on, and then you're confronted with it, and they, they both did a really good job though yeah
2: yeah it's a movie i i wish I, I wish more people would see i think out of i think out of everything i've seen this year especially someone um, you know me being from georgia you know um in a part of the country where a lot of people maybe aren't you know as loving as they should be i would really appreciate people being able to see that movie and just seeing how you know nasty some of the worst of us are and like that we can aspire to be better
0: yeah, I mean, I mean, some people might have been critical of it for like not, not being like as subtle as it could have been, but like that's not really Spike's forte and I I think it was worth it to put the uh, Charlottesville footage at the end. I mean, that like you can't we can't be confronted by that stuff too much because like it, it, we need to we need to understand that like we have a lot of work to do like in race relations and the more people can be forced to like have to reconcile with that is a good thing and uh, good on Spike for accomplishing that with the movie but like making it still making a very entertaining movie nonetheless that is also funny at parts and somehow manages to, to be a lot of things at once
2: he sticks his arm or arms around David Duke in the photo yeah.
0: I mean oh god yeah that was that was hilarious um, oh. uh, what's your number two movie of the year my um, number two
2: movie of the year is Vice
0: ah okay so that is a very divisive uh, movie you know and i i i think i felt despite the fact that it's very divisive i think i felt kind of somewhere in the middle on it so uh i definitely found a lot to like in it and maybe other stuff i uh, could it could have done better so uh, wh- how did it do so much for you
2: uh i feel like it would have been very easy to make a sort of straightforward biopic of dick cheney you know like mm-hmm. you could have just done the traditional a to b to c thing that we always get and I really like that the movie has a point of view, you know, like right from the get-go, like we know, okay, like Dick Cheney is awful. And like, <laughs> I mean, that's obviously my opinion and opinion shared by other people, you know, but I really like that the movie had a strong point of view and that it used so many uh, different like non-traditional uh, methods of filmmaking to really
0: communicate. So were, were, were you a big fan of the big short? You, you kind of like, knew you appreciated that kind of thing or?
2: Yeah. I liked the big short. I liked this better than the big short actually. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, yeah, I can't remember exactly, uh, specifics of the big short, but, um, yeah, I did like this better than the big short. Cause I mean, I don't know. Like I just, I think of, I think of things in this movie that just excited me things that like, uh, cutting the credits in the middle with the fake. end that was like, funny. That was brilliant. It was funny. Like it had something to say. Um, when, uh, dick and lynn are talking about him accepting the vice presidential role to have them recite actual shakespeare like i just think that's a very like inspired choice something that's very creative and gets to the emotion of something without you know like that's a scene you could read without you know having to know like the context the the exact content of what they're saying you know like it's emotional thing
0: yeah i like your point Um, about like the um the mid credits thing actually like being really like interesting in its own right because like uh and having a point to it, because I kind of just thought at first I was kind of like, oh, it's just a funny thing to laugh at, uh, just the way they put that in there, and that's a very unique thing for a movie to do. But at the same time, it's like there are a lot of people like that that could just like make a shit ton of money and never go back into public service and like advocate for harmful policies. You know, uh, we're 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 about to. Uh, in six years we will have had like 14 years of rick scott in our lives as someone serving in very high office on behalf of the state of florida and that guy made a ton of money in the private sector and he's like let's keep coming back for more it's like man like can't you just like go live on a lake somewhere you know yeah right (laughs) and it was a kind of a funny uh way to make that point where so many guys like make so much money and instead of like enjoying it, they're like, Oh, now I can afford to go make $150,000 a year as a politician and like advocate for really bad things. <laughs> yeah. uh, and
2: this movie like black Klansman also felt incredibly relevant to me when I like that uh, McKay focus on the unitary executive theory, like where that is just such, it was such a dangerous precedent set. And, and now considering who we have in the white house, uh, not to get too political, but like, um, you know, it's an incredibly relevant thing.
6: Like,
0: no, and now, I mean, I mean, it's even just since the movie got released, it's even more important because Trump has declared a national emergency and like that could end right. up going to the Supreme Court. And like all, some of the justices there uh, are uh, might be a pretty big fan of that theory, you know?
2: Yeah, um, exactly. So, I mean, just overall, it felt incredibly relevant. I like how they how interestingly it was chosen, uh, McKay chose to tell that story. Um, especially where Dick Cheney, like, breaks the fourth wall and makes the case for himself at the end of the movie. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> and then one more thing. One of my favorite scenes of the year uh, is him with W. When W. is eating the chicken wings. Cause
0: yeah, they spoiled it in the credits. I, I wish they hadn't done that. Like I was, That is a great scene. Or, not the credits in the trailer, sorry.
2: Yeah, like, well, one of my favorite things is because, you know, they they cut it with the, the fishing metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, the shot where, like they get like the hook and then like it's the piece of chicken hanging off his lip. I'm like, Oh my God, like, <laughs>
5: like,
2: that is, I mean, that's just so, that's so, I mean, like, I mean, sure. It's a little on the nose, but damn, like it was just really impressive and cool. And oh, I really dug
0: that a lot. So yeah. All right. You, you already spoiled your number one earlier, but you can go ahead and say it again for the listeners.
2: All right, my number one movie of the year is Spider-Man: Into the Spider-Verse.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna let you uh, vamp on this for as long as you want because I already talked about it a few times at this point because it's gonna end up being pretty high on our aggregate list because it's popped up a lot. So, uh, as someone that is uh, a very big fan of animated films. Uh, and we've already talked about a few different animated films on this podcast and how man like they're finding i I think we remember talking on the record ralph podcast about how like we were impressed by its representation in the internet and we were like oh well you know coco had its own city that looked really cool and Zootopia did this and i think we're like man they're really finding ways to just like push the medium visually and i i I didn't really know there'd be another one to do it so quickly you know and that's one of the more impressive things about the movie so um was it the visuals was it the story or just all the above that worked for you about spider-man in the spider-verse
2: uh, Spider-Man: Into the Spider-Verse was a great story that uh, was enhanced by the way it was brought to you. You know, it would have been very easy for them to just tell like a pretty rote, basic story um, and done all the cool stuff. But none of the cool stuff matters if if what's at the heart of it isn't good. You know, mm-hmm. like it's got to have mm-hmm. a good story, or else is all just you know noise. And the fact that they were able to really bring together all these different worlds and to convey it in such a visually interesting and visually like, you know, stimulating way was really incredible. I mean, you look at the history of animation and like these big, uh, benchmark watershed moments, you know, like snow white and seven doors first full length feature, you know, and then you look at some of the stuff that Disney did in like the fifties and then going into the nineties the with the more mermaid and being and the beast and really, Uh, changing the way the camera works in the animation to uh, computer animation with Toy Story and Shrek. And then now this, you know, where you just take something completely different, you know, it's, it's funny, like so many animated features, I feel like now try to kind of copy that Disney template where it's like, okay, we're going to tell the big adventure story. We're going to put a few songs in there, you know? Right. A lot of other studios are trying to do that right now. But I really am glad, especially coming off the Emoji movie, which was something that you know was, you know, not very good. Into like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, which is just something that decides to do something new with it. You know, it was just so refreshing, so exciting, so. I mean, it just opens so many doors for what animation can be. You know, like I feel like a lot of times with animation, we're, especially with computer technology, um, computer animation, CG, how good it's become it showing things in real life how many movies use vfx now you know like live action movies use vfx yeah that fully embrace animation as his own art form and to do it with a great story too um the movie's hilarious i love it um i love the whole ideology of anyone can be behind the mask especially like you know with so many of our superheroes just mostly being white dudes you know i mean like yeah, the fact yeah. that anybody could be behind the mask there's different spider-mans like you know i don't know it was just it was a movie that excited me it gave me a lot of optimism about what animation can be as someone who loves um animated films and uh yeah far and away just my best theater experience of the year so wow
0: oh well, high praise i'm curious to see like where it, if it shows up again i got a few more of these to record and, uh, yeah, I think it'll end up being in the, the rewinds top 10 for the year probably. So, uh, it, it, but I'm sure they're more excited about the Oscar that they're probably going to hopefully be accepting in a couple of weeks. I don't know. I mean, you know, it seems like it, it won the gold, I think it won the golden globe and, um, it, uh, won it after. It, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's high praise. It just, it, I mean, you know, it's like, it, seems, it still seems like the kind of thing like the Oscars could like screw up, uh, cause cause it's like superhero-y and, but, like, well, but, but, not but, but also not best Pixar. Best. Um, so we'll see
2: this in the movie world. Yeah. Spider-Verse be Oscar, please. Yeah, <laughs> like,
0: I know. I, I really want Warden Miller to be able to be on an Oscar stage. It would be like super cool. So we'll see. But uh, Joe, thanks for doing this. I appreciate you uh, recapping uh, your year in movies with me. And everyone else, stay tuned for the next list. All right, and we're back. And now I'm happy to be joined by my friend Graham Hall to talk about his top ten movies of the year. Graham's joined us on a bunch of our episodes thus far, most recently uh, being a guest on our podcast about Glass, the first movie of 2019 Graham, how's it going?
7: Josh, always good to be here. I am nearly positive Glass will not make my top ten <laughs> for 2019. No spoilers.
0: Yeah, anyway, not, sure not that's a not shocker to anyone that tuned into that one. But uh, just quickly before I jump into your list, do you have any – as you were looking through compiling your list, did you have any <laughs> big picture thoughts on the year of 2018? I'm giving everyone else a chance to reflect and see if you saw any common threads or themes as you looked over the movies that you saw.
7: I think it was a deep, deep year for movies, and, and that's going to be pretty common obviously as time goes on and you know i don't want to you know rant about technology but i think this was a very good year in terms of what you wanted there was something in every single genre superhero animated drama foreign uh you name it i think there was a very good movie at least close to what everyone was looking for um and i don't think you can say that about every single year
0: yeah i'd agree i mean i actually don't think i've had a lot of uh a lot of people put comedies in their top 10 yet i have i only have one comedy in my top 10 but like i had a few that i actually really liked that i thought were kind of good for that genre and uh everything else is kind of stuff that might in the past have gotten like a nomination like a horror stuff that's happened a little more lately um as well as just uh all the typical oscar fair and some of the popular stuff so i agree it was like really well-rounded so uh without further ado what's your number 10 my number 10 is Quiet Place. Ah, that, so that, you're the second straight person. Joe, <clears throat> Joe Morgan had it in his top 10 also, and that was he was the first one. So uh, what did you really like about that movie?
7: Well, I think it was very effective, especially for being PG-13. Um, I, I think that does deserve extra points in today's day and age. A uh, lack of gore, uh, a lack of jump scares, even uh, a very – not even so much a novel concept, but just effectively done clear cut uh it felt slow and um even though while being fast-paced and its use its lack of i was gonna say use of silence i think that's a better term than lack of noise its use of silence i, I don't think a lot of people had been in a movie theater that was that quiet before and it was extremely tense the entire time i thought it was a, extremely well done i'm like upset that, that they're doing a sequel honestly
0: yeah i don't really know what they're gonna do with that because i thought it ended really well uh but i mean I, I i agree i think that's the one point that i don't think i made when joe mentioned it this but that you made about uh lack of jump scares i mean there are a couple once you're they're really close to having that monster uh track them down in the house but other than that it's just like uh like a master class on how to ratchet up, ten, ratchet, the, ratchet up tension you know exactly
7: and the, and the monsters are terrifying oh, yeah. for pg-13 and i think that deserves being said. You know, 15 years ago, M. Night Shyamalan terrified people in signs by barely showing the monsters. This is not like that at all. Once they're in the house, it's very visceral. It's in your face. You realize exactly, you know, there's a lot of horror movies where they suffer from – the villain is not super believable in a sense where you wonder, oh, man, would they really be that afraid of it? But once you see – um, once you see the the actual monster in the basement, um, and and, and stalking a pregnant Emily Blunt, I, I you know I think that that was extremely effective because, uh, I, anyone would be scared of that monster.
0: Oh, for sure, I agree. Uh, what's your number nine? Green Book, and
7: and you know I'll admit, I didn't see it in you know 2018, so I had to go back and think about it, um, and you know. Despite all the controversy that came out after the movie, I think it was extremely effective. I think that Mahershala Ali is—you know—you have to praise him. Viggo Mortensen was great in his role. I, I think that you have to knock it
0: for believability. Um, there's a, there's well, It's a, few a true things, story, things but that, I mean that's part of the controversy, though, is that stuff was changed. You it's
7: know? not a yeah, it's not a super true story. And you know, I I don't, I don't know. I I understand the praise for it. I understand the. it it, why people don't like it i personally do like it i'm also in the crowd that thinks crash is a really really good movie and deserving (laughs) of best picture so take everything what i say with a grain of salt but i i think that it was extremely effective and, and and i liked green book it could be a lot worse and i don't know it was it was good it was good it could have been a lot more cliche than it was
0: yeah, and I, I I'm. I, anyone can go back and listen to the podcast I did it with my friends uh, Josh and Daniel on it. I mean, I it's one where I left the theater feeling like very good, and I really enjoyed it. And then I just kind of had to reconcile that does have some problematic aspects of it. And it's like, how do you kind of reconcile those things? Whether the fact that it's a it's a story about race told from a pretty white perspective, they didn't really consult Dr. Shirley's family. And um, at the and, and at the same time, like there's uh, other parts just like within the movie about you know dr shirley's like psyche and if that if they go about that in the right way because you have his family criticizing him saying he actually was close to being a, a close family man and he actually wasn't that disconnected from the black community and did it address all those things the right way but at the same time like i i did i did and th- leave it thinking his priorities were like in the right place even if i can kind of recognize the criticism people had with the storytelling and it's just a it's a unique experience to have to like leave a movie i had a great experience seeing it with my family and then i kind of read everything else that everyone said and like you said it's easy to recognize like. All the criticisms as being totally valid, but also kind of see what it did right at the same time, you know?
7: Yeah, it's it's a gray area. Not everything has to be perfectly clear. I think that there's a, you know a movie that does a lot of things right, and, and like you said, it, it's through a very white lens, and that's not <clears throat> the probably the best method to tell Doctor Shirley's story. But I th- still think that it's eighty percent successful. Um, and it would have been hard to capture the story perfectly or, or the true story, or whatever it is. And, and that's just – that's usually a, a typical Hollywood consequence. So I was not sh- shocked by that at all. Right.
0: All right. Well, right. What, what is your number uh, eight movie of the year?
7: It was actually – it's actually not a movie, quote-unquote. It's a movie that you and I uh, did a podcast on, ah. Three Identical Strangers.
0: Yeah, I got snubbed at the Oscars, dude. I was pissed about that. Yeah, it wasn't even in the. I mean, neither was uh, "Won't well, uh, You Be My Neighbor," right? Yeah, that that was even more of a shocker, probably. And then they gave the director of Three Identical Strangers the DGA award at the uh, at, for best director of a documentary. So it was very confusing that the guild liked them that much, but he didn't get a director nomination. But uh, yeah, people can like go back and um, go back and listen to our podcast about that. So we won't uh, drone on too long about it. But did you have any like thoughts as you look back on that about like what that documentary meant to you? Because I know you felt a pretty personal connection to it.
7: No, I, I still do uh, feel one, and I, I think it's a, a very universal story about nurture and 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 the more you know, I do think about it in day to day life. Uh, I recognize the importance of nurture, and I don't know if. I can say that I did before that movie and that's why we love movies so much is is what you know they can leave with you often and what they can teach you whatever you want to call it and and that one was one that deeply resonated with me and I'm still thinking about it you know I would even say weekly.
0: Yeah, you know, and I, I, it it was such a, it's such like a slam dunk of a story. I mean, I don't know if they're actually going to end up making a a feature film about it. You know, that came out back then. But it's like such a hard story to mess up because it's so compelling. And the fact that I don't, I don't think they really messed it up. And they told a really interesting story about nature versus nurture at the same time as, and not letting it lose its entertainment value along the way, but at the same time, while you're, having a fun time watching that story you don't really lose sight of the fact that it is pretty tragic everything that happens even before you get to like the most tragic part with the with the death at the end so uh really well done and i'm I, I encourage people to go see that movie if they miss it in theaters and then go and listen to graham and i talk about it on one of my i think it was probably one of the first 10 podcasts i did so yeah good choice what's your number seven of the year
7: totally opposite guilty pleasure movie
0: yeah ready player one all right, man. That's a that's an out of left field pick, but I like it. So, uh, I man, that thank was, you. That, that was from early last year. I I've seen about it that four on... times. Whoa man right so i talked about that on the my old podcast with uh, anthony and uh, we both we both enjoyed it too you know we liked shitting on spielberg on that on our old podcast and because uh, we just weren't as happy with some of the stuff he had done as of late and we were both kind of like almost hesitant to even both say we liked it because we didn't be the be the we didn't want to be the one that liked it and then we both liked it so we had a fun laugh about it but uh man i mean i had not talked about any i've not talked to anyone that was like that huge of a fan about it so uh had you read the book and like was that part of your uh entryway into it or what what really did you connect with about it?
7: What's 100%. Up? Big fan of the book. Um, I've read it twice. And the movie, for what it does well, – I, I was wondering I what you were it, doing
0: for a second. I was like, hey, I why was, am I looking at your bookshelf? And yeah, I'm showing, you, you, up this showing you my bookshelf. Your book. yeah. <laughs> um, it's a movie that I, – I, I, I give
7: it a little more praise, and here's where the bias comes in. Yeah it's it's a it, the book was written in the 80s mm-hmm. and all the pop culture references had to be changed and adapted by spielberg and a lot of people are going to uh, you know knock spielberg and the guys that he wrote it with but it was an extremely extremely tough book to pull off and it, and it's it's kind of like a like a visual candy land in a sense so i kind of wish i saw it in 3d the first time around I'm just a really big fan of it. It's not perfect in any sense, but it's extremely fun. If you like pop culture, if you like video games, uh, this movie is absolutely for you. It may be a little bit too long, if anything, but it's very funny, warm-hearted. Uh, it, it's got a lot of what people, you know, I think, you know, look for in movies uh, today. And and it's not perfect in any sense. And I think the reason people knock it is because of the sky-high expectations. For it, it one being a, a very famous book from you know 40 years ago now, and it being Steven Spielberg, uh, it's going to be something that we see more and more as these amazing directors continue to age. You know, we're you're you're seeing it with The Mule, and you're seeing it with other movies where these you know these directors who are clearly in the final maybe you know decade of their lives, we're going to ultra judge. <laughs> what they choose to, you know, be their final projects. And, and Steven Spielberg is never going to create anything in the final decade that people are going to say is amazing. But this is, is, I, I think, a huge step in terms of what, um, at least for special effects, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a technology es- expert, but, you know, a decade ago, James Cameron did Avatar, and, and people praised that. But the special effects in, in Ready Player One, in my opinion, are ten times better uh and
0: yeah i mean it's really impressive that like a 70 year old guy like spielberg pulled something like this off you know i mean like you said a lot of it has to be updated though i will (laughs) say about your point about updating the references one thing they didn't one thing that was actually from the 70s even was the shining sequence which is i'm now like that's
7: not in the book that's not in the book oh really it's on the book. No, that's brand new. That's that's why it's so genius. That's such a risk. And how perfect was that homage to The Shining? Yeah, I wish I, I, mean, put, I forgot to talk mention I,
0: I forgot to mention it when I did best scenes in the awards podcast, and now I'm kicking myself because I was pretty. That's thin. a great
7: scene, yeah. right? And that's that's totally created by Spielberg and and the writing team, obviously, because that's not in the book at all.
0: Yeah. No, it's really impressive. Like it was super entertaining. Like you said, I can see why it rewarded you on rewatches. And at the same time, like it it gets to be really entertaining, but you know, it makes you really think about like what it's trying to say about how we consume pop culture and whether or not we're just recycling the same shit over and over again and just using the same intellectual property over and over again. And uh, also makes you look inward a little bit about fanboy culture and Spielberg himself is obviously looking inward a little bit because he had a big part in cultivating a lot of that kind of stuff. That's And somewhat toxic, and the movie kind of grapples with that. Also, it's like it it accomplishes a lot. Like you said, it it is maybe a little long, but it does accomplish a lot with its runtime. So,
7: I I would say a common thread in all Spielberg's movies is the questioning of existentialism and and you know life. And, And we've seen even you know with AI, artificial intelligence. Even before that, I would say he was posing these questions about what would happen technology fully took over and this is another movie where people are living their day-to-day lives in in utter garbage in the sky but they feel okay about it because they're in an online they literally call it oasis and and it's a book that has become extremely extremely relevant and it's up there probably with catcher in the rye or at least getting up there because people are recognizing that it's more culturally relevant you know, 35 years later than it was even at the time, what what the capture in the rye, you know, did for, I would come, I would say commenting on depression and, and, you know, what, what a teenager could go through and bigger signs like that, mental health, whatever, whatever motifs you want to talk about Uh, ready player one totally did that with the threat of living online and, and online being, you know, able to suffice, and, and what would happen to that if the 1% controlled the online? And, and this is a, a movie that I think people are going to look back kind of like with AI and and, and think high, higher of it than
0: they did on initial release. Um, uh, it'll be really cool to see how it ages. That is uh, for sure. What is your number uh, six movie of the year? <clears throat> okay,
7: easy one, Black Klansman. Right. We don't have to talk about that too much. That's, that's an easy one. Yeah. Um, uh, what what a great movie! Obviously, and, and you have to give Spike Lee immense amount of credit because a lot of people have have written him off, called him a joke, whatever, for the last five six years, while he's quietly done a lot of very very quality films. I would say, even even since you know his work at HBO and all that stuff. So I, I would say that you know Black Klansman's not perfect. Adam Driver is really really good. Uh, so is John David I Washington. Think, yeah, of course, yeah. every everyone in the movie is extremely good. The story is, is well documented now, anticlimactic, even in a sense, but the movie um captures, I think accurately the anticlimacticness often of uh, a year-long investigation. You know, the the finale isn't the most exciting part sometimes of criminal investigations. And I think this movie does a very, very good job of of capturing that. yeah.
0: And one thing I'll say about that is that, like, in a way, I guess you can say it's underwhelming. And I hadn't thought about it in terms of this, but you know, they they play the footage from Charlottesville at the end, and it's like, yeah, the, the, it kind of reminds you that like you might have had fun watching this story, but at the same time, like they didn't solve a lot of problems with it. Even if it is a cool story in and of itself, you know, like we got a lot of work to do.
7: Yeah, that that's certainly the biggest thing. I I think you know the movie the the parallels. I, I that's probably what sticks out to me the most. They're 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 laughing in the FBI office. He's hanging up the phone. And then you see the scenes of the cars plowing through, you know, people Mm -hmm. in Charlottesville and and it's, you know, the movie ends like that. And it's like you said, it's, it's very sobering for people who, you know, obviously. Yeah. Anyway, very, very good movie. Uh, Would not be disappointed in the slightest of it. One best picture. Unfortunately, that's not the way the Academy works.
0: Hmm. Yeah. What, what, what's your number uh, four movie of the year? Number five, number five, five. Sorry, yeah.
7: uh, Incredibles 2. Oh, okay, uh, man.
0: So you, you and Joe have a lot of I'm, overlap. You
7: and Joe. Okay, good, good. I, you know, I wanted it to be higher even. Um, it's not perfect. It's not better than Incredibles 1. Anyone who says that is, is only saying that because they're loving how much it got close to living up to the immense amount of hype. I mean, Toy Story 2 came out, what, eight years after Toy Story 1? We're talking twice that time more yeah. than no no we're talking I yeah think to- we're talking i think toy story years. toy story
0: is like 94 it was like 5 years between the first two and then like okay. 10 years between 2 and 3 so yeah
7: so we're talking about pixar got sold to disney uh, i mean we're talking you know nearly a decade and a half we're talking 14 years and the movie on its own, completely lives up. I mean, it's a different style of animation. I think that if, you know, animation experts...
0: Yeah, I watched the, I, I watched there. both of them pretty close together because I hadn't seen The Incredibles before, until right before I saw Incredibles 2. And it's pretty glaring what, how much they upped their game on that. I compare it a lot to,
7: you know, when you play like a remastered video game and you're like, oh man, this is, this is just what it looked like. You know, when when I played it as a kid fifteen years ago, and you watch the animation in Incredibles two, and you think, oh, it's exactly the same. But then you go back and and watch the first one. No, they did a great job at capturing the same thing, while improving on it. I, w- I would say hundred percent. And and I, I've watched the deleted scenes. They had to leave a lot out. You know, I I think that it's it's a very impressive movie. Pixar does a great job. I'm hesitant about some of the Disney live action movies coming up, but you know, Pixar is, is still one of the best studios every single year and I think their movies have to be regarded as top ten each year they come out. What's your number four? The favorite. Right. Um you know, I I think you and I did pods on The Lobster. Yep. And and maybe if we didn't do it on the lobster, no, 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 no we did we, killing
0: of a sacred deer. To go. Yeah, we
7: did yeah, a killing yeah. of a sacred deer. So you know, Yorgos Lanthimos, for you know, uh, those who don't know, I think is one of the most underrated directors in Hollywood. Has really kind of burst on the scene in Hollywood after blowing up in Greece as one of the most promising filmmakers uh the lobster was was very very good he obviously loves working with colin farrell he loves working with
0: deadpan
7: yeah. actors who are very effective in deadpan and Olivia, Olivia and
0: coleman and rachel weiss were they they returned they, they were both in the
7: lobster and then they came back for this that's right that's right and and so i think that you're seeing him develop a kind of a a wes anderson type cult of people. A repertory company with. yeah and and i think that that's been extremely effective for a lot of people enough so that people will, will go see films, <clears throat> um, that are from that filmmaker. You know, we, we, we know many, many names that, you know, you see one of their films and you're a fan of their style. And now this is three in, in what, five years, mm-hmm. uh, that have been extremely, extremely well done while being distinct, while having the same kind of style, you know, or, or you know, I don't know what what the word is, but there's a very common theme in all of them. You can tell that they're all by the same director, and this one,
0: which is cool for this one because it's like such such more of a comedy, but it still feels like it's him.
7: And I and I feel even bad commenting so much on him. I'm just a fan of him. Uh, the real person who, if if the favorite does capture some some Oscar awards, if it does, you know, woo over the Academy, is is <clears throat> this is um the dream of of someone who wrote the script 25 years ago and it's been reworked for 25 years and yorgos lanthimos before he even kind of blew up on the scene you know before the lobster back in 2012 he was working on this screenplay with a very unknown screenwriter and he kind of i don't want to say he put all his other own success on pause but once he kind of blew up in America with killing of a sacred deer and, and, and the lobster it's been getting made. And and I think that you have to, um, uh, I think that he's getting the credit he deserves, but hopefully in the next few years, this screenwriter will, will get yeah. more credit because well, it's, the two, screenplay two is terrific. it's
0: Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. And I think they are okay. the odds on favorite to win original screenplay. So.
7: that would be awesome because, yeah. because this has been in the works for, I think 25 years. You're going mm-hmm. to have to fact check me on this. And, and no, I think you're right. They they, their first someone's... draft
0: was in the nineties. You're right. This is their
7: life project. And, and I have to, you have to give them a lot of credit last year. I loved phantom thread. This gave me a lot, a lot, a lot of phantom thread vibes. I don't know how many people are comparing the two movies. They're totally different, obviously, but they're, you know, they're 1800s off deadpan humor in a way is is very very similar, and we'll have to see how it appeals to the Academy.
0: I I, you know, I actually think that uh, Phantom Thread was in the 20th century, just like early 20th century, because I remember there's a car in it. But but I mean that's I, right. I, I agree. Were, I mean they're both period pieces and uh, both like. Probably both received costume nominated drama. Both might be the Oscar winner for best costume because I think Phantom Thread unsurprisingly won costume. Uh, So, no, yeah. And the one thing I'll say about your ghost, because I I think I probably said it when we did the killing with the secret deer pod, but like uh, Lobster (coughs) and killing of a sacred deer i both i like the first half better than the second half and i actually thought dogtooth was like a more complete movie but at the same time not as not that rewatchable because it's just so out there and tough tough to watch and uncomfortable yep. at parts but like here it was like definitely like the most complete yorgos film yet i'm regretting not having it in my top 10 it's like 12 for me and like as as other people have talked about it as i've done this podcast like i'm now like regretting it and now i feel retroactively really bad about not having it in my top 10. Uh,
7: but you're confirming how good of a year it is. I mean, I oh, think there yeah, are for sure uh, there are movies that are in my top fifteen that I regret leaving out. And, and yeah, I got Roma. Sure and Roma in the, I have ones. Roma yeah, in the that's yeah.
0: I have Roma in the favorite on the outside looking in. I feel like awful about it, but I guess like you're right. It speaks to the year in movies. Uh, so yeah, what's yep. your what's your number three?
7: So you said when I was talking about there's something for everyone. You even said there's some comedies that are really good. Yeah. <sighs> Eighth grade number three.
0: Ah, okay. I, I I see eighth grade as a horror movie more than a comedy, but uh, okay, okay, <laughs> okay.
7: That's fair. That's but, fair. I mean, it's a it's a it's a deep commentary, and I think you and I are still we would count ourselves in the the generation that grew up with with social
0: media, but not middle school. That's a crucial distinction, I think. I mean, I I, I had
7: space in middle school. Oh, look and, at you, Mister Cool. And, I mean, I was. <laughs> I, I didn't have. I didn't have an iPhone. That's that's a the right. That's the bigger Snapchat thing. I yeah, yeah. Facebook on my iPhone. I, I, you know, when you had your phone out in class, they would take it away from you. Right. Uh, it, it's clear that in this movie, you know, it's a different day and age. Kids can have their phones out, talking, snapchatting. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the amount of social judgment, public commentary tools that their at their fingertips are. Uh, uh, you know, no no generation has seen it, and we won't know for years the long-term effects. And, and this captures, I think very effectively, Bo Burnham is a guy from our generation who grew up on YouTube and, and making YouTube videos of him playing very funny songs. And then he was in Funny People, and he was in a lot of movies, and this is his first movie, kind of like Jonah kill. Hill. Yeah. yeah, yeah. he's been in a lot of stuff, and, and um, he probably is one of the few people who was able to capture – this generation and, mm-hmm. and, 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 there's a lot, um, that's not, you know, not perfect about the movie, but the, the actress is extremely good. And, yeah. and I think that the movie does a lot, extremely, extremely well for a comedy. Uh, I, I couldn't lo- you know, love it more. I saw it three times. It's, oh, wow. it's certainly uh, one of the best movies of the year and, and kind of like ready player one, I could see in a few
0: years it being held higher, Oh yeah, I mean, so if someone makes a movie that insightful about the internet, it's uh, I think it's gonna look. It's gonna, people are gonna like look back on it pretty fondly. I mean, uh, who knows? Maybe some of it will become a little more outdated. Maybe the kids will move to something else off of Instagram. But like you know, he got even the small things right by listening to the kid actors on set. If you've heard some of his interviews, it's like he had them more ma- messaging through Facebook, and he listened to the kids. Like, nah, the kids are doing it through Instagram these days. And he even got like the small details like that right, which is like really important if you're gonna be like a 27 year old dude making a movie about like teenage girls.
7: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: What's your number two movie of 2018? (sighs) Stars Born. Ah, that's my number two also.
7: Great movie. Mm -hmm. Absolutely great. You know, I I think Bradley Cooper and obviously Lady Gaga, but I I would even say more so Bradley Cooper. This is him taking the next step in his career. Um, (laughs) He needs to avoid the the Ben Affleck trope where once he takes that next step, he he completely falls down the staircase. But (laughs) I, I, it's funny, even like the, Ben
0: Affleck, though, like he. Well, his he, his his movie's probably not gonna win Best Picture, but they both got snubbed for Best Director for their most critically acclaimed movies, you know?
7: Yeah, which is crazy because the amount of work that Bradley Cooper put in to, you know, we often kind of criticize remakes, but if you're remaking remaking a movie that people uh, hold in high regard already and has been remade twice, I think, if you, if you make it, if you find a way to make it better. I think that you have to judge that extremely high and uh, uh, you know I haven't seen the originals but by all accounts this is this is better you know I know that when I saw it I cried in the theater not ashamed to admit it it's it's uh, the, it's the uh, one movie from I, last I,
0: year I saw 3 times in the theater which just tells you how good it is wow. if it's that rewatchable see I only yeah. saw it
7: twice yeah. and, and well, I, went, I went back and, and saw it in IMAX oof. when
0: they put it back in a, in the IMAX right next to my apartment because <laughs> uh, I just wanted to have that wow. experience yeah
7: that's wild because I mean I I can't imagine being around a lot of other people. And I I saw it once in theaters and once at home, and and after that one time in theaters, I didn't want to.
0: Man, such a cry such, such, softie, such a softy, Graham. You're such a
7: softy. I am, man. I I I do cry all the time. I mean, I'm I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Movies definitely get to me all the time. Um, and that was one that, that got to me more so than others last year.
0: Yeah, let me ask you because I know you are you are a big music guy. And one thing I just haven't talked about even though it's come up <laughs> – Stars Born come up a couple times in the podcast. I can't disagree with anyone that says the first half of the movie is better. It's – I mean – but I think people are like conflating like – like better with fun at the same time it's like i think the whole movie's really good the first half is probably more fun but i still really like the second half if there is like one legit criticism of the second half i'd say who knows maybe the movie didn't have like the most clear point of view on exactly what it was trying to say about the kind of pop music ally ended up making where did you come down on that as to like whether or not they were trying to say pop music's bad or the music she was making was bad uh did you have thoughts on at least the movie's attitudes towards that style of music as opposed to what she was doing earlier in the movie
7: no, I, I didn't, I didn't think too much about the commentaries about what style of music is better. I mean, I don't know. I, this this is tough because, you know, and I try, I try not to take everything as way too deep in, in a movie like this, but you're supposed to care a lot about, um, you know, him t- t- telling her to like stay true and all that stuff while he's leading himself in a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. So the movie makes me question and I think makes a lot of people question, you know, how much you should listen to the narrator, uh, and, and, or the protagonist in this case, and how much you should feel like their side is right. And, and him consistently saying, don't change, blah, 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 even though we see that consistently in the music industry. And, and, you know, Lady Gaga is a prominent figure of do what you do and, and maintain your style and don't let change for anyone. But I think, I think this movie was more about um, taking your own path and, and, and taking risks and finding through trial and error who you should trust and who you should listen to and what you value because it's a very, very complex, uh, I think, issue. And, and I, I don't think that there's one right question or it's making one statement one way or the other. But I think it does make you question um, how much you should value other people's input. Um, And also,
0: especially when it's someone that's inspired you so much uh, throughout your – or I mean other people's input maybe in the way that like uh, a slimy record producer is telling you to be one way. But also when someone's meant so much to you in your life as Jackson does to Allie, uh, how how you deal with that when that person is clearly at a different point in their life while you are – clearly finding yourself at the same time you know and it really is it, the yep. movie really makes you feel a certain way about that which is really impressive for a, a first-time director to be able to have such a like a nuanced take on an on an issue like that and really make it come through
7: definitely definitely
0: so what's your uh number one movie of 2018 what do you think it is i'm gonna guess it's black panther wow was i right no no
7: nope. oh nope. man
0: uh god damn i thought you we were gonna have the same top two uh what else did we not talk about yet? I don't know. What? what okay. Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Oh shoot, dude! You're like the you're the you're the you you and Joe Morgan both had that number one. Wow, dude. Yeah. Okay,
7: perfectly recreates what. <sighs> What it feels like to read a comic book and to sit there for three hours and read a comic book all the way through with your face in the fucking page. Well, also Sorry, recreates to what say that word, no, but,
0: we have the explicit tag. I'll say. Also recreates what it feels like to look at a comic book because it's pretty uh, innovative and just how it looks for an animated movie.
7: But it's updated. It's like that comic book you know was written uh, extremely
0: effective. The the animation
7: is distinct. It's it's not a retread. There's a reason it's so highly regarded. I ha- had enormous expectations going in and, and absolutely loved it. I- I'm going to see it again. I've only seen it once, okay. but I've read a lot about it, and it's clearly – I left the movie
0: being like, okay, that was the best movie I saw last year. Did you come away thinking it was the best superhero movie you'd ever seen? Because I've had – my, my guest, my friend Maya, who did that podcast with me, said it was the best superhero movie she'd ever seen. Yep. Wow. Agreed. Damn. So, aside from just being able to create that comic book vibe so effortlessly, what did you really connect with about the story? Because it is pretty a pretty unique story for just compared to other superhero movies we've gotten recently.
7: Well, there's obviously a lot of familiar tropes, and, and that's to be expected. But it it is very very original. Um, I think the best message—how do I say this the right way—is that one failure is normal and I think comic books have always done a good job at making us think oh you become a hero and then you save the day but um often if you actually read comic books you know the hero loses or or the comic book is oh to be continued he'll he'll live again or the the villain wins a few battles um and this movie kind of perfectly captures that where you know very early on Miles gets bit by the spider mm-hmm. and you know the the typical comic book trope or the Marvel you know typical line is okay now he is Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. I mean yeah he has to go through this trial and error process to figure it all out but he's going to become Spider-Man. And this movie does a very good job at making you believe that or, or creating that sense of mystery about whether he would actually pan out. I, I, I would say, um, the story was extremely well done. The music was very good. The animation, uh, the voice acting, you know, it had a lot of famous people in there. Um, I, I would say in the last five years between the Lego movies and and like I kind of said, even with ready player one, I, I would say the last five years we've got the best, Visual effects movies, if not animation movies, because this is not just an animation movie. There's clearly oh, c- for sure, com- computer generated visual effects, whatever you want to call it. But in the last five years, we've had some amazing movies, and this is one of the best ones.
0: Well, man, I think because, uh, you know, I, as I've already explained to a couple of people, we're going to have like an aggregate top 10 where I'm going to kind of add up and weight everyone's uh, picks by points, you know, like 10 points for first place, nine for second and so forth. And, I mean, I think that might end up being at the near the top of the rewinds uh, top 10 for the year. So it's really interesting to hear that. Where's it for you? Uh, it was 17. But, I mean, I saw 130 movies last year. So it's like, I mean, that, that's, that's there's, fair. There's, I, there's, there's a no lot shame I did that. not
7: see. Everyone, that's a tag I did not see. Vice,
0: I did not see... There's a lot I did not see. Did you get the the Beale Street yet? Not yet. Yeah, no shame in that. Well, I know it was not... Unfortunately, it was not out in theaters for very long. Annapurna kind of screwed up the release. And so, yeah, I mean, that was the thing. Like, I had... Like, Beale Street was nine, and I had Roma 11 and The Favorite 12, and... Uh, black clansman 16 and spider verse 17 so it's like i have a lot of stuff like bunched up at the top but i actually have like four things on my top 10 that no one has said yet either so i'm curious to see what'll pop up in the last one as well but uh graham i appreciate you being so generous with your time and i look forward to hopefully talking with about a few of 2019's best movies with you as well and uh hope to talk to you again soon
7: thanks man looking forward to it always a pleasure
0: to join you everyone out there stay classy all right stay tuned for the next list people And we're back. Now I'm joined for the final top 10 of the Top 10 of the Year Rewind podcast, and I'm joined by my friend Josh Brown, who's been on quite a few of the podcasts to date, most recently for The Mule, and welcome to Marwin, who knows, maybe one of those will show up in his top 10. Josh, how's it going? They
6: They do. They do one of them does one of them does
0: All right you number deal. 10
6: it's my number 10.
0: Before we jump into your top 10 Josh I've been giving everyone a chance to give a quick big picture thoughts on the year in 2018. So as you were making your list and you went back, did you have any quick thoughts about the year in 2018 compared to what came before it that you wanted to share?
6: Yeah, so like when you go back to like twenty seventeen, I think twenty seventeen will actually be go down as like a memorable movie year. Like if you just look at the best picture nominees from that year and contrast it from this year, where like that year had Get Out, it had Phantom Thread, it had Lady Bird, um oh, had, by your name. Yeah, Shape of Water had Dunkirk, and then if you think about that year as a whole, it had it, it had Baby Driver, it had it had like another like big block, Wonder Woman. Mm. There you go. Like, it had a lot of memorable movies. Even even if you didn't love some of those films, it had a lot of memorable movies. This year, I think there's a lot of uh, – there's far less movies I disliked from this year. Uh, I saw 100 films, which I think is a kind of record for me because usually I'm in that 80 to 90 range. Right. Um, but I don't think there's as many movies I loved as last year
0: um i think there are fewer in the best picture lineup that people are they're they're more the best picture lineup that people are angry about between green book uh vice and bohemian rhapsody no one was that upset about most of what got nominated last year besides maybe like thinking darkest hour was kind of boring you know yeah
6: yeah yeah no like i think this might be one of the worst best picture lineups uh, like in the past like decade uh um because like i don't think anybody's really excited about this best picture lineup i think maybe there's one or two movies that people love or whatever but it just is like three poison pills and, and and it's just it's just yeah like so the best picture lineup is kind of weak this year um but overall my, uh, in terms of the, like you know the movies that came out in 2018 I think it was a pretty decent year. Not my favorite, but it, it was okay. Yeah, there's not like too much to complain about, except for uh, Green Book, Bohemian Rhapsody, and Vice.
0: All right. Well, without any further ado, you already kind of spoiled it, but what is your tenth favorite movie of 2018?
6: Okay. So, um, my number ten of the year. And I'm probably the only person in this world who has this movie on their
0: top. Aside from like the nine other people on Letterboxd, they gave it a four and a half or a five. Marvel.
6: Um. I had a lot of fun with it. It was an eccentric film. It was anything, it was not, uh, I think you might agree with this. It was unlike anything you saw last year.
0: Yeah, that's a great note to leave it on. If anyone wants to get more of your thoughts, they can go to our podcast on it. But this podcast is over three hours long, so we're not devoting any more time to Welcome to Marwin. What is your number nine?
6: My number nine, this is another, again, this is another one where I'm probably the only one that has this in the top 10. But actually, you like this movie. Instant Family. This movie yeah. really resonated with me. Why? Okay, so as some of you may know, I'm a teacher now, and so that this movie is about like you know raising children, like you know the difficulty uh, 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 of children maintaining order. Um, and if you, even though it was about like uh, adopting children, about kids in foster care, if you like. Sw- switch it and make it about like teaching the same lessons that the movie is teaching applies it's a very honest movie when it comes about the difficulty of like you know dealing with children it doesn't sugarcoat anything it's honest and i I, it really it hit me hard it was like a type of movie where i'm like if i could watch it every day before i go to work i think i'd probably be better at my job
0: yeah i'm glad Um, i'm I'm glad it made your list because like it's not one that like i (laughs) I think I don't remember why. Like I, maybe I just went into it without having a plan to do a podcast about it because I had tempered expectations and I. I don't know. I really enjoyed it, but for some reason I didn't think to ask you to do a podcast on it because I, I mean it was probably one of the higher rated movies I had of the year that I, it was twenty one on my list, which is no shame in that because I saw one hundred and twenty movies last year. But like I mean, I really enjoyed it. I agree with you that I. Well, basically, I was just saying I hadn't had a chance to talk about it. So, because of that, I didn't ask to do a podcast. So, I was glad it was on your list. But I really enjoyed it, too. But, like, like you said, it doesn't sugarcoat anything. Uh, on the surface, you maybe go into it thinking it will because it's a Mark Wahlberg movie and he makes a lot of movies that are probably pretty silly, like Daddy's Home these days, where it's like, oh, it's just going to be kind of whatever. It's there. And it really didn't take any shortcuts. Like, it really felt like it really captured the one step forward, two steps back nature of taking in kids that old as foster kids and trying to adopt them and it was very funny at a lot of points at the same time but it was very tough at other times and very moving at other times and it's pretty impressive when a kids movie can be all those things at once.
6: Yeah, it's a great family film, um, and, and, like, the cast is fantastic. Rose Byrne is always great, and then Isabella Boner, like, uh, she's just, like, she was in Sicario, too. She's great.
0: Oh, yeah, we, um, that was the first movie we talked about, um, and yeah. I, I don't I don't even know if we said her name on that podcast. I didn't even think anything about, like, oh, she was good in that movie, too, but I was just like, yeah, she was there. That was a, there was a girl in that movie, and now she's probably going to blow up because she's going to be in the Door of the Explorer movie, maybe. Not yeah. blow up in our demographic, but she's going places for sure yeah
6: she's gonna be dora um but yeah like this movie it really it really hit me hard and i was and here's the thing it's a movie where like like when you go into it and you're telling someone hey man instant family that 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 hit me hard it's <laughs> like i it, 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 like when i gave it a 4.5 on letterboxd i'm like am i getting soft with age <laughs> um because this is sort of like you know that type of it's the type of movie where like, if someone like older told you, yeah, one of my favorite movies of the year was Instant Family, you'd Im- immediately write off. And maybe the listeners are writing me off on this one. Well, yeah, but- so
0: if anyone's listening that hasn't seen it, uh, t- even if it looked a little silly on the surface, definitely go check it out if you can get it somewhere on streaming. It's really good. Uh, what's your number eight?
6: Number eight. My number eight of the year is Assassination Nation*.
0: Man, that's popped up on a few lists. I think, or at least, just maybe Daniels, Elijah might have mentioned it somewhere else. I can't remember if it made his. So, or what really worked about that for you?
6: It felt like if young Brian De Palma of Carrie and um, Blowout Fame made a Purge movie. Hmm. It's a very stylish, low budget indie about um, the dangers of social media, uh, especially. When it was a younger generation, I think it's kind of like maybe the better version of eighth grade when you talk about the themes. And it's super stylish and it's a movie of the moment because it really gets into, you know, mob mentality, trolls and all this stuff and the punishing effects it has on society. And and it has like a great lead uh, performance by this trans actress in the film. Uh,
0: Harry Neff, who you might have seen on Transparent, but I hadn't uh, seen her anywhere besides that.
6: Yeah, yeah, she's she's really great in this movie. Um, you know, it it it's just a very stylish fun movie. Every scene it's going for broke. Whether it's uh, through the camera, whether it's through editing, um, it, 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 like when I first saw the trailer for the movie, I was I was worried that it was going to be uh, um unbearably smug and I think a lot of people found it that way, but I thought it was far more sophisticated um than i had expected uh when i came out of it
0: all right well very good i don't want to add too much more into that because i already talked about it with daniel so what's your number seven
6: um my number seven is black landsman it's the only best picture nominee on my list
0: interesting yes that's come up a lot uh that's interesting your favorite of the best picture nominees so uh what did you really like about that and how did it stack up to other spike movies for you
6: um, right now, I'm getting annoyed with the narrative that, like, you know, if Spike wins an Oscar for this movie, people are going to see it as, like, a career legacy, like his scent of a woman type win or whatever. Ooh, and that, that, yeah,
0: that's that's unfair.
6: Yeah, and people are saying that this is not top five Spike, or not even top ten Spike, and I think that's bullshit.
0: Okay, five five, you could argue because he has a lot of great movies, and it's, not, yeah. a, it's not, a, not an insult to put it at six or something, but ten is really stretching it.
6: Yeah and like this movie compared to Vice another historical another satire about historical events like this movie is funny but it's also powerful and moving um it, to me it's in top 5 spike um and I really oh. like Spike Lee's career um and just like Spike has something to say and it really and the movie becomes even more relevant with each passing day. We just went through the whole scandals in Virginia, and it's like the it's like the movie, you know, like saw ahead and um, despite you know commenting on Charlottesville, which is probably one of the most moving sequences of the year. But there's just so many in that movie like I keep playing like the scene with the black students uh, uh, listening to the song Too Late to go back now. And and it's just you know it's a very funny movie, um, and I think it's a it's a I think it's the best directed movie out of the best picture nominees because Spike's personality is in every single frame of it.
0: Is there is there one example of that that you that you think of when you? I mean, I guess you're saying it's in every frame, but can you give like one example of that that really stands out to you?
6: Um, you know, I I think you could talk about like. You know the you know the contrast between the black power and the cake and the Ku Klux Klan watching um, uh, Birth of a Nation and like Spike Lee's commentary on the history of cinema and how it has manipulated us from like Gone with the Wind to Birth of a Nation, you know, and, and depicting uh, uh, black people and degrading them. And you know, Spike Lee has always been a filmmaker who has been, you know, pretty outspoken and, and pretty critical when it comes to this. And so you have his viewpoint coming through, but in a very artistic way. Uh, you're getting his commentary, you're getting his perspective on it in a way that, you know, he's on a soapbox, but it doesn't feel, you know, it, it's preachy, but not in a way that feels uh, uh, smug or uh unbearable
0: yeah you can also imagine him like just as far as his personality being very excited to make that stokely carmichael scene with the idea of like largely white audiences going to see this movie and having to sit through that
6: Yeah, <laughs> and, then, like, and then the poetry adds to it too where like you know the artistic flourish he adds is like putting the black students in this portraiture like black background thing so you see their faces as
0: they're watching
6: yeah it's a great uh, yeah he nominated the wrong white guy from that movie
0: uh, you want to Toe for Grace?
6: Yeah, like I get Adam Driver's great in the movie, but I think like Toe for Grace is that's a genuinely great supporting actor performance.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, as uh, or I, I, my friend Graham just said in the previous segment, he had uh, he had Black Klansman just one spot ahead of you. He, the, really, for the scene where, um, or, or no, that might have been what Joe said, but the scene where he just like, uh, where um Stallworth puts his arm around him for the picture just the jump he does there is like <laughs> that maybe that alone could have gotten him an oscar nomination uh, what's your what's your number six
6: okay so i guess my list like you know is very populist and very middle brow this year but i can't say that um i like I, I i can't deny how much fun i had with this movie crazy rich asians
0: ah man okay that's interesting i uh you're the i think you might be the first one for that to pop up for so uh and i, I hadn't really talked about the movie at all with you so i had no I, if you had asked me before this like if, if i if i had, had to guess where you were on this beforehand i wouldn't have even known what to say so it's my number 19 so i really liked it a lot too uh what'd you enjoy about it
6: all right first off let me say that this is the type of film that's going to be played on airplanes for like another decade it's going to be a fun airplane
0: watch definitely gonna have a good run there
6: yeah um and okay i like so when we talked about earlier this year announced they were going to have like the best popular film uh, category and given the best picture nominees i think they sort of stealthily got what they wanted where you know you have stars *Born*, but more importantly you have bohemian rhapsody black panther right mm-hmm. all right instead of having a movie like bohemian rhapsody right if this if the populist fair that you're honoring was something like crazy Rich Asians, I don't think I would have a problem with it because it has such a great ensemble. The whole cast is stacked. Everybody's game. Everybody's great. You know, there's a case for Michelle, Michelle Yo being nominated. There's a case for Henry Henry Golding and Constantine Wu being nominated. Aquafina. Like the cast is so great. It's so Gemma, Gemma,
0: Gemma Chan? Yeah, I mean, it was just really fun. Some people thought it was going to win an ensemble at SAG, and it would have been well deserved.
6: Yeah, no, it totally deserved it. And to be fair, you know, it was up against Black Panther, and so, you know, that's fair. But, like, the thing with Crazy Rich Agents, like, you know, uh, people knock it, like, oh, it's just a conventional uh, uh, romantic story, and I don't think that's fair. Even though, it, yeah, it goes through, you know, this type of story that you've seen before about, like, a fish out of water. She has to impress, like, you know, her lover's uh, family, but... Because of the specificity of the cultures representing on screen, it adds a fresh twist to it. it that, that, was, that
0: was exactly what I was going to say. I mean like just the idea of like you would think that like this person's family would just be happy that he's been living in America and he didn't bring a white girl home. But she's not even the right kind of Chinese girl, and mm-hmm. that's like a really interesting twist on like how a story like this goes. That And you get to learn about how that culture sees different, rate, it's different segments of its community that we're never even really thinking about in our everyday lives.
6: Yeah, and also like you know, and next time you go to a wedding, you're gonna have to compare it to the wedding in Crazy Rich Agents. Just exploring that world was fun. I'm I getting annoyed with the text, Well, it's like pro, you know, it's like it glorifies capitalism and all that stuff. And I'm like, look, the movie's called Crazy Rich Agents. I don't know how you're gonna make a movie that doesn't like look lavish. Um, yeah in which by the way,
0: that wedding was, scene is great. I wish I had mentioned it when I did best scene on the awards podcast, but one of the few times I don't really cry that much at all movies, but like one of the times I almost got a little emotional at the movies this year was just like when the when it, the camera shows him looking at her uh, when it, when it shows him looking at Constance Wu at the wedding and like the, then they drop in yellow and yeah like, yeah I, I was like, man, like why don't I mean like I've enjoying this movie, but why am I getting emotional right now? Like that was just such a well done scene
6: yeah by the way that was me at the end of family when they like at the uh uh adoption <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> the kids um but um but yeah no like crazy rich asians it, 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 it by the way this movie it cost uh 30 million dollars to make yeah and the costume and production design is insane mm-hmm. for a dirty million million dollar movie to look the way it does i think it deserved like a production design and costume nomination at the very least
0: for sure. I mean, it it looks incredible, and it it would have been a pretty big disaster if it didn't, given the just the title and the money involved. It made me really want to go to Singapore. Oh, uh, and also the texting intro at the beginning. Great. Oh, yeah, that was funny. Uh, what's your number five?
6: My number five is Mission Impossible Fallout.
0: Ah, it's shown up on a couple of people. So, uh, yeah. I mean, i I'm, I'm I'm assuming just like you, like anyone else, it probably just gave you everything you want from an action film, huh?
6: Yeah, I could not stop the friction, man. Okay, so this is probably my favorite franchise because you never know what Tom Cruise is going to do next. You yeah. thought like, he had topped himself when he was hanging on the side of the airplane, which he probably does, but he probably did. But the helicopter chase, the bathroom fight... Well, the Halo he, jump. Yeah, it just, like, it's insane. It's insane. I think this has the best story out of the out of all the Mission Impossible films.
0: I definitely liked it better than Rogue Nation's story. Um, didn't have to spend as much time dealing with the red tape stuff, and they actually utilized alec baldwin in a, like a somewhat interesting different kind of way which was what really bothered me the most about rogue nation was having to go back to him in washington every 20 minutes
6: and yeah and i really cared about like this time like the thing with the mission impossible movies is you're not there for the plot you you're never there for the plot uh um and but you don't just- like
0: you don't like it when they thrust the plot in front of you a ton anyway even if that's not what you're there for and then if they're going to do that it needs to make sense and i thought it at least made sense in this one
6: yeah, yeah, and in this one it made you need to at least care about you know like being Rames and, and and the and, and uh, Ethan's crew and, uh, and 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 not only that but I like I love like you know the plot construction of like say like the opening sequence where you think that uh, um, that they fail that mission and then you have like this Wolf Blitzer cameo and I thought the movie was very clever in how it designed its plots and how you know it closed some arcs and the new ones because um, like in this movie now we're going to explore you know uh, they got rid of uh, Michelle Monaghan's or, like, or sort of ended her arc in this movie and now we're exploring the um, uh, Rebecca Ferguson arc
0: now. Yeah I mean they obviously heavily implied throughout uh, Rogue Nation and then this one that there is some kind of romantic connection with Ethan and uh, Ilsa but I mean that would be at least some new ground for them to tread if they wanted to delve a little deeper into that in the next one so I'd be really curious to see how they go about that uh yeah what, what's your number four
6: um, my number four is
0: game night yes thank you I, I was waiting it's also my number four and i was waiting for someone else to bring it up
6: yeah and you know like when we talk about like later like be, like we talk about like people who should have been nominated for like best actress and best supporting actor all right rachel mcadams has the best line reading of the year oh no he died yeah they, um, they blew it in
0: the trailer they, but like uh but yeah it's still pretty great
6: yeah and like it, when you, it's the type of movie when you come out of it like you're just telling your friends all the best lines in the movie um how they nailed the david fincher look to the film oh okay um I, I compared this movie to charade charade was a I parody, like yeah, yeah I, think you would, I think you would really like it um uh, charade was like a parody of alfred hitchcock movies this is a parody of um david fincher films and they really nailed the look the style of it there's even a great like panic room homage with this like single take wonder. um and you know it, you know i say it's this generation's clue uh it, it's just a fun movie the cast is just great like Jesse Plemons as the neighbor next door um yeah
0: we're going to uh, talk about him a little later when we talk about best supporting actor on the awards podcast but i mean he is incredible yeah
6: there's so many great guys and and it just it's really it's rare, it's rare for a studio comedy to be this stylish
0: as well it's really really well written too. It's just a very sharp script, you know. And I think about one one example I can think about with that is how I thought Billy Magnuson was like the worst part of Ingrid Goes West, and he's like hilarious in this movie.
6: Yeah, and, I like the movie goes West.
0: Oh no, he's like the worst part of the movie for me. But uh like I mean I part of that and I think part of that's the writing, maybe it's part of it's the performance, but like it's just they, they they so sharply draw that character as like a dumb guy that can have like spurts of like actual decent ideas every every once in a while, but he's more often not saying like a dumb thing or doing a really good job of just like not picking up on the subtext of what Sharon Horgan is saying. And it, 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 I it, it's I think
6: that cast like, oh. scene when they try to bribe Chelsea Peretti
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's just like a funny movie. Like, I don't have a lot to say, but it's like just when a comedy can like give you that kind of compelling of a plot, and yeah, they're obviously largely going off of what, largely going off of like Fincher, but like they do it in a way that still feels pretty fresh and uh, respectful and all that, and yeah, just like so many great funny moments. I'm I'm glad someone else had it on their list. Uh, What's your number three of the year?
6: And keep in mind, my my numbers one through four, like all of them could have easily been my number one. Um, so it was really tough, like you know saying which one was my number one, which one was number two, right. and stuff like that, but my number three is old man in the gut, all
0: right, so I talked about this with our friend Ben, and um uh, I think you saw it a little bit after, and you you I mean we both enjoyed it, but it seems like you probably even liked it more than us, so what did it really do for you?
6: All right, you know, as much hype as like we did for the meal, this is the better version of that um, I think it's a low key but charming uh 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 Melancholic movie um, uh, and a great meditation on aging and past regrets and all this sort of stuff. It's insane that Robert Redford is not in, was not in the conversation for Best Actor this year uh, um for this movie. And I'm not a David Lowry fan. This is like the first David Lowry movie that connected to me. But and when I saw the trailer for the film, I'm like, oh, that trailer looked really good, but I feel like it was not going to be indicative of like the actual movie but it's a great caper. It's a great and it captures that, you know that 70s movie uh vibe very well. Uh, um but without ever like feeling derivative or pastiche, you know. It's just it's a great send off to Robert Redford.
0: Yeah, no, I mean I really enjoyed it too and people can want my more in-depth thoughts, go listen to my podcast with uh Ben about it. But like yeah, it's just like it's a, such a it's like such a beautiful movie about such, such a simple message to me is like how do you want to spend your time and that you have on on this planet you know like and I, th- I really enjoy the parallels between um casey affleck and redford's characters where redford's like kind of sacrificed so much just to do this one thing he loves whereas you know affleck doesn't love his job to that point and he you might maybe get intrigued by certain aspects of it but you know he gets enough out of his family life that it doesn't matter if it's something he doesn't love being a detective as much as Redford loves robbing a bank because he has something else in his life to hold on to and Redford never had that interest in the family that he had that he never knew he had and I, I, I don't know I just really enjoyed watching those two parallel arcs and thinking about like how different people feel about where they are in life based on how much they're getting out of their professional and personal obligations what's your uh, number three
6: um i thought that was my number three oh, uh sorry
0: well, number two you're number two sorry
6: all right so this again it could have easily been my number one i think right. it's probably best reviewed film of the year first reform
0: ah okay uh, you're not the first person to bring that one up so uh i don't i've already talked about it a couple of times so i'm just going to give you the floor what do you really like about first reformed
6: um again this is a uh, paul strader you know going back to his taxi driver roots um and it's just, like, that movie, I was very... When I saw the movie, I I was very taken away by the ideas it was talking about. How it's a very, you know, uh, uh, dark but also thoughtful film that ruminates about faith. And it ruminates about, like, climate change and stuff. And it's, it seems like it wants to have a debate. It wants to have the discussion with you about this. And... And then, like, just the narrative is pretty simple. You know, you're following this um, uh, priest who's going through some type of, you know, uh, existential crisis about the world and his place in it because he's, you know, ha- he's has cancer right now. Mm-hmm. And while the world has cancer with this climate change that's going on and he has to make these tough moral decisions and – the movie like you know people are going to be debating about that ending because everybody is just reading it differently um and it's just a movie that i think a lot of people can go into with different interpretations with and and whatever is interesting interests them they can have a compelling read on it as well and it it's a movie that doesn't it's not a feel good movie um definitely not but, but it is a movie that i think you know, if you're willing to challenge yourself in terms of these questions that ask you, I think you can take a lot of, away from it.
0: Uh, agreed. And without any further ado, what's your number one movie of 2018?
6: All right. So it's a Marvel superhero film about a black uh, superhero. It is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse.
0: Yeah, so that's been the most that's that's gotten more number one votes than anyone in this podcast. So uh, again, it's one that I've talked to you to death over the last three hours. So I'm just gonna give you the give you the floor again. Uh, why why did this are in your top spot?
6: All right, now this movie doesn't have the emotional catharsis that I gained from like Old Man and the Gun or First Reform, but I can't deny if there's any movie that deserves to be in the MoMA. It is Spider Man into this uh, Spider Verse. That's a pretty
0: high praise. So it seems like you were very impressed by what it did visually.
6: Yeah, it, what it did visually is a huge leap forward for both, you know, you know, superhero movies and also Western animation. It's insane. Um, if you have epilepsy, you will die during this movie. <laughs>
0: That's what Daniel said.
6: Yeah, like it, 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 like we, I saw it with him or whatever. and He had a headache when we were watching it, <laughs> <laughs> and still loved it. We were both like, oh, like it was funny like you know um at the end of the film we're like okay you know this movie every single scene we are appreciating what it's doing and we're like still like you know it's probably moving a little bit too fast or whatever um um it's like it doesn't give you a moment to breathe but then at the end credits where they did the spider-man meme we're like oh i'm like Okay, it's a five. It's a five. <laughs> um, it's it's a perfect movie, and it just it's insane how like Lord and Miller, who are producers on this film, like can take what seems like a bad idea and have some great some creative fresh fresh take on it. And it's just insane that like we never got there solo after watching this movie because it renders like the upcoming Spider Man movie that we're gonna get this year just mute like. Why even try when you have Spider-Man into Spider-Verse? Yeah, do this fresh thing that like it's a very innovative movie for like cinema. Like just like just the editing of this film, like this should be nominated for best editing. This this is and also like. Why isn't sunflower in the best? Song?
0: I think there might have actually been a reason for that. I didn't read about it a ton. Like, I wish it, I, I really like that song. It's been stuck in my head basically since I saw the movie. But I think there might have been something with what it sampled from that might have kept it from the original song. I'm not, don't quote me on that, but I think that might be why. I don't actually think it would have. I don't think it was up for it.
6: So yeah, that would make sense if there was some type of technicality on yeah. it, like maybe like it wasn't originally intended for the movie or something like that. But um. But yeah, no, and, 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 and I, you know,
0: I actually read. I, I bookmarked a story to read later. Apparently, about how you know, just that his first forty-five seconds of the movie, how he's like kind of singing it, but doesn't really know the words. It's almost mm-hmm. like kind of supposed to tell you something about the character just from the get-go, about how like he he's a little unsure of himself when he's like singing that, and kind of how he's just like still trying to find himself as a person, and even like a uh, like a moment like as like small as that can actually mean a lot.
6: Yeah, yeah, no, I think there is some depth with, like, the Miles Morales story. And also, like, I was, you know, moved about, like, you know, how it resolves his, you know, the two uh, uh, male figures in his life and how it resolves that between um, his father and his uncle. Um, And it's just, the movie, to me, it's just, it's, it's a stunning visual achievement, but also, like, you know, what it's saying about, like, You know, with comics, with comic book movies and now how you can retcon everything, you know, like Mm -hmm. and how like we can do different variations on stuff. It's a very meta movie in that way. And and but it's very, you know, forward thinking in that regard, too. And like when it comes to the superhero films. I think with animation, it finally—like, the problem I have with a lot of Marvel movies is the fact that they're not particularly innovative with their style. Like, you know, when you read a comic book, you're overtaken by the look of it, right? Okay,
0: everyone, just so everyone knows, Josh is the biggest fan of the Russo brothers.
6: No, 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 no. But, so when you're reading a comic book, you're overtaken by the style of it, but, you know— When you adapt it for live action, there's inherent limitations, right? But with animation, you can go anywhere with it. And so, like, it's like the perfect marriage, and it's crazy that we haven't done it before until now. So Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse, best animated movie of the year, best comic book movie of the year, and probably the best movie of the year. Yeah.
0: All right, well... Thank you for providing us with your top 10 and being so generous with your time. Before we sign off for the end of this podcast, I'm going to just run through the few movies I have in my top 10 that did not show up on any of the seven guest top 10s. So, my number 10 of the year was Creed 2. I know you weren't a huge fan of that. Uh, jo- I think Daniel actually was, but I hadn't really talked to either of you about him. I don't think it's as good of a movie as the first Creed, uh, but I also think it's way more ambitious. It uh it tries to do a lot. I mean, I think it's really impressive what it does with the Drago family, but at the same time, it tries to do a lot with the Donis, and it works. Some of it works, some of it doesn't. But it fits so much in there, um that I think it and enough of it works that like it made that cut for me. And oh,
6: oh, could I say something about Creed too? Go for it. I'll say this: the Ludwig Gorenson score score—that's the score I would have nominated from him for this year. Interesting. There's a track on it running. Great. Uh, oh. It goes very Morricone in it. I I love this. I think the score is one of the best of the year.
0: Yeah, I mean, and uh, both the original Creed and that one, do they do a great job of like also like seamlessly adding in the classical actual Rocky score and different yeah. in, with different kinds of instrumentals, and it gives me chills every time. So, uh, yeah, no shame in not being as good as the original, but like I I, I, I left it like the, when 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 Drago throws a Natal uh for his son, like that movie maybe more than anything in any Rocky movie, even if there it's not like the best Rocky movie or anything like that yeah uh, we
6: know the best rocky movie rocky 2 yeah no but,
0: no uh j- j- n- n- no on 2 a 3 is great uh just to recap uh i've already said it beale street's my number nine minding the gaps my number eight my number seven is wildlife i don't think you got around to that one
6: uh in uh, new york uh, i have seen theater. oh you did see it yeah
0: did you like it yeah, like uh, yeah, I liked it. All right, great. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's um, I mean, for a first time director, Paul Dano shoots the hell out of that movie. Uh, yes. m- makes Oklahoma pass for um, I, I uh, wait, it's in Montana, like just somehow, yeah. And uh, it looks really looks really great. I mean, maybe the best Carrie Mulligan performance I've ever seen. Uh, I mean, she's done a few things I've really dug, like her episode of um, uh, her episode of Black Mirror or uh, or not Black like Mirror, excuse me, good. Doctor Who in education, but, like, I mean, she's amazing, and just a great story about, like, uh having to grow up when you – before you actually realize you want to grow up, thinking you want to, and then realizing, I'm not ready yet, but then having it thrust upon you by your parents, you know? I don't know if you have any quick thoughts on that one, but, like, I mean, I don't know. I just I just really enjoyed it, and I was really impressed. If it. Uh, some people might say – I mean, I, I, I know some people said it did feel like a first film, but it just – I, it didn't feel too showy to me in, like, the way some first-time directors might want to be. I just think he really let the setting and the actors do all the work, and that's really the, what you can hope for from a director in that scenario. But, uh, yeah, uh, my number six was Lean on Pete. I don't know if you saw that. I, that one I did miss.
6: I, I did miss Lean on Pete. Um, I'll probably try to get—that and Minding the Gap are the ones I want to get to before Oscar Sunday, I guess.
0: Um, well, I mean, it's not nominated for anything, so— but yeah, like, it, yeah, I know, I know, I know but I'm like, to wrap up the year— yeah, just a great story about. Um, I think it's really. I mean, I was shocked. Our friend uh, Daniel didn't see it because it's uh, largely about a boy and his horse. But at the same time, I think one of the best moments of the movie is when you find out that it's maybe not actually about the boy and his horse. That's right. I mean. yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a terrible reason not to see it because it's, it's like actually really powerful and it's 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 really a story about um, just com- the, the importance of community and just having a true home. And it but it somehow like sneaks up on you in a real emotional way. And I I, I, I miscounted earlier uh, when I said three, there's actually four in my top 10 that no one else mentioned. My number mm-hmm. five of the year is disobedience, which uh, okay. I, if I had to give uh, Rachel McAdams an Oscar nomination for best supporting actress, this is the one I would do it for. Ironically enough, it's my number five game nights, my number four, but I mean, it's the story of Rachel Weiss and, uh, plays a a british jewish woman that has been living in new york but she comes back into her uh suburban jewish london orthodox jewish community and when uh when her father dies her father was kind of like the 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 head rabbi of this orthodox congregation which is a really big deal in those communities and you find out that maybe the reason she left was because she had had a lesbian relationship with rachel mcadams character who has uh since uh become married to a uh, to the guy who's probably going to take over the Jewish community, played by Alessandra Nivola. And I don't... I mean, it's just a—it's just very powerful. As a Jewish person myself, I'm not a Orthodox Jew, but, like, you know, I think Orthodox Jews are such private people that you don't really, like, think about a lot of their beliefs, you know, especially how socially conservative they are. And, and you know, in certain ways, like, I think We've seen and examined in popular culture like how maybe like the black community might have some issues with uh, homophobia. but it the, 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 that lens never gets turned on the Orthodox Jewish community just because they are so insular and so private. And to see the strain that those norms have on their community in, the story told with three really great performances, but uh, Rachel McAdams was a standout for me. It's just like really powerful stuff. And it's kind of like my novitiate of this year. Novitiate was like the female-led movie last year that made my top five that I had no one to talk about with. And Disobedience was it this year. Like I really dug that movie and I hope it, people, it, it finds some uh, viewers streaming. And then again, my number four is Game Night. My number three was Widows. My number two was A Star Is Born. And my number one was Black Panther. So all of those obviously showed up on other people's list as well. I really appreciate everyone I don't really think anyone's still listening that – listen from the very beginning of this podcast because we're over three hours now. But I hope everyone tuned in and at least listened to a few of these segments if you – and I'm going to put in the in the comments. I'm going to put like – or not in the comments. In the podcast description, I'm going to kind of put how the aggregate top ten fell with how I weighted each of these as people rank them. So Josh, thank you for joining me, and I hope uh, next year you'll join me to talk about some of 2019's best movies.
6: Gemini Man is going to be on my top ten. Mark my words. God, Angley, don't fuck this up. Don't fuck yeah, this up.
0: Yeah, well, he already, uh, we, we already see how your Iliad Battle Angel prediction went. So,
6: uh, <laughs> hey, man. Uh, Marvel made it. Marvel made it. Ready Player One was an honorable mention. So, Gemini, man.
0: All yeah. right. I'm down. All right. Cool. Well, everyone, thanks for listening. We'll see you next year.